Blog Talk Radio. Angeles, October 11th and 12th at CFI LA. We've been t- 
telling you guys about it for a year. So they are really, you know, Black Skeptics Los Angeles is the host group. They're really excited about this, you know, conference coming up, and they're looking forward to seeing you. I've posted it all over the place. I'll post it again this week. But it's a $40 registration fee, $25 for students. But I'm going to give you a discount code. If you use P-O-C-B-F, again, P-O-C-B-F, just the initials like our hashtag, um, basically you'll get 50% off. So it will be $20 registration and $12.50 for students. So I just want to let you guys know that um, Dr. Hutchison is extremely excited about this conference, a lot of work, a lot of hard work went into putting all this together and you know um you know they're just really excited excited about it. Next year the host group will be Houston Black Nonbelievers. So, you know, the second conference will be taking place in Houston, Texas next year and Donald Wright um will be spearheading that just like Dr. Hutchinson spearheaded the conference for this year. Donald Wright will be spearheading the conference for Houston. So, you know, a lot of hard work goes into this. You know, make sure you reach out and um, ask them questions if you have questions about the conference. And it's just going to be a really good time. One thing I will tell you about CFI LA is that it has a parking lot and it's ample parking there. Uh, They will have daycare services available for those of you that have children and would like someone to keep an eye on them, you can contact Dr. Hutchison about that as well. The email address for that, for Dr. Hutchison, is blackskeptics at gmail.com. Again, blackskeptics at gmail.com. You can also use that same email address to make a donation via PayPal. And Black Skeptics Group is a 501c3 organization, which means that you're contributions, your donations are tax deductible. So I wanted to make sure you guys knew about that as well. Even if you can't get to the conference, if you want to sponsor some tickets for a few people or just make a donation, you know, um, Dr. Hutchison would welcome that and we would appreciate um, all the help that we can get because, again, um, now planning is going into effect for 2015 in Houston, Texas. So, you know, we want to do it again next year, and we're looking forward to seeing more and more of you, you know, um, some exciting developments. Um, it's just been a real a real big learning experience, um, all of this here for the past year. Um, the webcast will be coming back. We will be starting those back up soon. Uh, so basically, um, you know, I'm just giving you all a heads up. We're going to do the digital conference again in February. Uh, we didn't get a chance to do it again this summer, mainly because, you know, I started getting really sick. And so, um, just anyway, you know, I started getting really sick, so it made it very difficult. Anyway, so we'll be bringing it back, and we're looking forward to having you all be a part of that. If you all want to send us an email, you can send us an email to peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Again, peopleofcolorbeyondfaith at gmail.com. Every Thursday, or almost every Thursday, we have a Twitter chat at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, 7 o'clock Central, and the hashtag for that is POC Beyond Chat. Again, that's POC Beyond Chat. 
and we started talking about different social justice issues um, that have been in the news, um, social justice issues that are relevant to the secular community, and we plan on picking that back up and continuing on with that particular conversation. So just wanted to kind of give you all a heads up as to what's happening out here. Let's see here. So we talked about that. There's been so much happening in the news. I'm sure you all have been keeping up with it. This is a bad week for me. So I was only able to keep up so much with so much. But I remember posting something about Mike Brown's dedication memorial that the people put together for him was burned and destroyed or defaced. And, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, I don't understand why they would do something like that, but I kind of do. And there's no excuse for that. That is why, you know, it's interesting how the police chief came out and started apologizing for what has been happening in that area and, you know, what's happening with the St. Louis County, you know, police departments, period. And now that, you know, they're being investigated by the Department of Justice, I'm sure there's, you know, an inordinate inordinate amount of pressure being put on them, but it seems as though they need it. It's like they've just been getting away with anything and everything. You know, if you go back and you read some of the facts about Ferguson, it talks about how there are approximately three warrants per household, and basically with the fines and the warrants and things of that nature, that is how they are able to basically finance their city services and how there are no people of color, you know, um, being represented in in the electoral process, um, meaning, you know, Alderman and people of that nature. So, yeah, there's a lot of pressure coming down there, and, you know, I just hope that something positive can come from this situation. And like I said, you know, there are many of us that would have loved to come down there, you know, but for different reasons we weren't able to do so. But I know many of us were able to send in donations um, via financial donations, via materials, supplies, resources. Um, I know some of us financed for other people to take the bus trips down to Ferguson. And I know there were buses that left from all over the place. I know there was a couple of buses here in Chicago. A couple of friends of mine, um, you know, went on those trips and came back and told me what was happening. They called me when they were down there. And I know there were buses from New York, D.C., um, just all over the place. And so they needed the support. You know, we can't stop supporting them now. Now that everything has calmed down a little bit and it's gotten a little quiet, you know, we cannot forget what's happening down there in Ferguson. We cannot forget the importance of these young people, the millennials, are actually out here, you know, taking an active role, taking leadership roles and responsibilities on As I've said before, I'm truly, truly impressed at, you know, what they're doing. I'm I'm just, you know, I was shocked. But, again, like I said, my generation, the generation before me, and even the generation after me, you know, we kind of fell down on the job. 
and these young people are saying we're not going to take it, that institutional systemic racism is, you know, it's a no-go. You know, who wants to live under that? Who wants to thrive under that? You can't thrive under it. You know, uh, you just can't. So, again, you know, what's interesting is with the different dialogues that I've seen across the Internet, um, not all of them, but just, you know, quite a few, especially in the comment sections of major news periodicals when they put a story up, and just the blatant racism and bigotry and then you have people trying to convince us that we live in a colorblind society and that we are post-racial. And I always tell them, go look at those comments, since we live in a post-racial America, a colorblind America. And it's just interesting because Bill Maher, um, and I'm not his biggest fan, but he basically excoriated um, white America, telling them that them acting as though you know, racism is dead or there's no racism. He told them that it was idiotic that racism does still exist in America. And, you know, it's it's just interesting. You know, when we say it, people want to ignore us or not believe what we're saying. But when someone from their own culture, if you will, says it, then, you know, in many cases they'll respond to it. And in some cases they'll continue to ignore it. But, no, racism is not dead Um you know, maybe we need to do a show about capitalism and racism and, you know, white supremacy and show how, you know, I have to point the finger at, you know, some of us as well, how we continue to perpetuate white supremacy in our own way. It's just it's really interesting um, when you try to explain that it's extremely controversial and, you know, I have to be in the mood to deal with that. So, you know, going beyond that, you know, the millennials need your help. They definitely need your help um, down there in Ferguson, the Operation for Black Struggle, um, Amnesty International, the UN, a number of different groups were down there helping, um, some church groups. And I remember when we did our, you know, first show back and we talked about Ferguson and Raina had talked about how one particular church gave groceries to every tenant in the, you know, um, complex in front of the Mike Brown's, you know, murder scene. They went to every apartment and gave them groceries to help them throughout, you know, this ordeal. And, you know, I've been saying for a while, where is the secular community? Where are we? I mean, and so, you know, that went on for a while, and then someone showed me um, the little articles and announcements that were made by, you know, um, American Humanist Association, um, what's American Atheist, um, Secular Student Alliance. They also issued a statement, and that's all wonderful. At least we're getting them to acknowledge it now because there was a point in time when, you know, many of these mainstream atheist organizations would not even acknowledge these issues. And you've heard us complaining about how they didn't acknowledge, you know, the Zimmerman verdict, how they didn't acknowledge the Voting Rights Act. Um, Well, AHA, they did release a statement talking about racism. But for the most part, these situations were ignored. And we had issues with that. So we see them making an effort 
you know, I'll give them credit for that, but more needs to be done. You know, I would like to see us, you know, putting together, you know, in the future, being able to send people there, being able to send supplies there if we can't send people there, you know, something to help, you know, the people, the victims in this situation. And what I find interesting is um, in a couple of situations in the secular community in which, you know, we were talking about the situation with Mike Brown and Ferguson and how people wanted to basically argue that the cops are good people and it's not all cops. And they totally forgot, you know, uh, the premise of the conversation. It wasn't about talking about the cops and whether the cops are good and bad. It was about Mike Brown, about Mike Brown being basically, you know, killed in cold blood. Even after he stopped and said, okay, you have me put his hands up, and the officer kills him anyway. And then the officer would not allow anyone to come help him. So there were people out there, medical professionals, I think it was a couple of nurses out there that wanted to come and help him, but the officer wouldn't let them help him. And his body laid there for several hours. And then when they did pick him up, they put him in a duffel bag and dumped him in the back of an SUV. And then they showed some more video about how, you know, basically, you know, they, you know, just had total disregard for that young man and and what had happened to him. And, you know, they had not expected the type of uprising that they received. So, again, you know, you're starting to see more and more people in this country stand up. And, of course, you know, I'm happy to see that people are standing up for their rights. Um, One of my concerns is when they put forth these demands, and I've seen some of the demands from some of the groups because they actually went to um, a city council meeting in Ferguson, and they started making some demands there. And, you know, they're demanding for economic and educational um, opportunities, which is needed um, in many cases with a lot of the violence that you see in these neighborhoods it's because there are no opportunities to advance, no opportunities to be educated, no opportunities, real opportunities to work. So it's just interesting. You know, it's not a simple solution because this has been going on for hundreds of years. We're not going to find a solution in two days and implement it in two weeks, which is why I find it interesting when you have people saying, well, you know, slavery, you know, you all were emancipated 150 years ago. How much time do you need? But they don't take into consideration, you know, the black codes, you know, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, um, you know, just a number of issues that we had to deal with then, and we're still dealing with it now. This is why you hear people talking about the police state, um, and you hear me talking about public policies. It's, it's, it's written into the government, you know, that, you know, oppresses. And, you know, for those that try to take the EEOC route and the human relations route, um, you know, really for the most part, you know, there's nothing really done. Um it's just really interesting. Um, they want you to complain and tell about how you've been discriminated against. And then once you put the complaint in, you know, uh, it's, it's the whole process is lackadaisical. 
the whole process, um, basically they feel they can throw money at the situation. Give them a few dollars and then they'll go away. And unfortunately, that's somewhat the precedent that's been set by some people. This is why many of us were unhappy about Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson running down there as soon as this happened and telling the people there to go home and to pray about the situation and then turned around and had the nerve to try to take up, you know, a collection, a donation collection. And I was happy when those people booed them, you know, off the stage. That is exactly what was needed. So, you know, again, you know, these younger people are saying, no, we're not taking it, we're not having it, and I am proud of them for standing up for themselves. So, you know, there were a number of other issues that were in the news this week. I would just encourage you to go and read the newspapers, you know, online for free. You know, try to read them on a daily basis, but if not, you can always try to catch up over the weekend. So, last week, we talked about part one. We talked about a number of different issues, slavery. I talked about how women were basically, you know, the backbone of, you know, pretty much every movement that we had. And, you know, what's interesting is um, in, in the majority of these cases, you know, the importance of the role of women has been put on the back burner and, you know, the focus has been on the men. And so it's really interesting today when you see people talking about the civil rights movement and, you know, I believe we're, like I said, in a new phase of it now. And you have a lot of men that are jockeying to be in the front. And it's just really interesting because if you look behind the scenes, you will see that there are quite a few women um, making this happen, you know, quite a few women that are out there and, you know, supporting this. And we talked about how the women are the backbone of the church, which is why I find it interesting because you have a lot of women in the church that in some cases they complain or talk about, you know, the sexism or the misogyny and they don't understand why women aren't allowed to preach and teach and they don't realize that they have the power. You have the power of the collection plate. If you start making certain demands and stop giving money and stop volunteering for free, I guarantee you the pastor will have a new vision. You know, he'll have a new prophecy about the Lord coming to him that night, telling him that women are equal and should play roles in the ministry. But, you know, it's just it's interesting. I know some people are at home, like, why, why is she telling church people, you know, what to do? And should she be encouraging them to leave the church? Um, well, you know, my response to that is I do not believe in, you know, a deity or anything of that nature. However, I do understand why some people do attend church, why some people do believe. And for those that are still attending church and those that still believe, why can't we encourage them to seek, you know, the same rights as the men in the church? You know, what's interesting, we talked a little bit about the civil rights movement, the black power movement last week. And, you know, I hinted upon, you know, briefly spoke about how a lot of the black feminists were forced to make a choice between the feminist movement and the black power movement. And at that time, you know, the women were being promised that 
if they were part of the Black Power Movement, that they that their contributions would be, you know, uh, taken into account, that they would play, you know, you know, powerful roles, you know, myriad of roles in that, you know, movement. And but right now, you know, they needed for them to support the black men and to uplift the black men, and then it would be the women's turn. And that never happened. It never manifested. And what's interesting is we're hearing the same rhetoric today. And, you know, I've even gotten into, you know, uh, heated discussions, if you will, with some, you know, men of color regarding, you know, black nationalism. And for those that are familiar with me, you know that, you know, we're not black nationalists. And I've stated that I would not support that particular platform. I've stated that in the past. I'm stating that now. Um, because as far as I'm concerned, the majority of, and I'm, again, I said the majority, not all, but the majority of the people that stand firm on that black nationalist platform, they are actually perpetuating white supremacy. It's just in blackface. And I've talked about that on this show, and again, I need to do a show on white supremacy, white privilege, capitalism, and how it's all interrelated, but in particular, show black people how we play a role in perpetuating white supremacy um, in some cases. And I talked about that last week a little bit when I was talking about Booker T. Washington and talking about how, you know, he was telling the other blacks in the community um, that that they should, you know, accept the discrimination. And basically, you know, um, him and W.E.B. Du Bois, they disagreed on strategies for the black social and economic progress. Um, and their philosophies, again, were opposing. We, we've talked about that last week. And basically, you know, they argued about how to end class and racial injustice and what is the role of black leadership, what do the haves or the have-nots in the black community. And so with Booker T. Washington, he was urging people of color or black people to accept discrimination for the time being and concentrate on elevating themselves through hard work, um, material gain, education, so on and so forth. He believed that education in the craft, industrial, and farming skills and the cultivation of virtues of patience, enterprise, and thrift would lift us up. So basically it's one of those bootstrapping, lift yourself up by your bootstraps type of, you know, ideas. And you'll see many people even in this community that have that, you know, same mindset. And he believed that by doing that, we would win the respect of whites and lead to African Americans being accepted, fully accepted as citizens and integrated into society. And that was not true then or now. That was never the case. I mean, we've made some major strides in this, you know, um, in America. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is that we are still being treated as subhuman, as second-class citizens. I mean, in many cases, it does not matter how much money you have. You're still a person of color, and we're still dealing with issues of racism. We're dealing with issues of classism, um, just a number of things. You know, um, 
I brought up occupation Occupy Wall Street last week, and you know they've made some major strides. I mean, they've paid off some emergency room medical bills for people. They've paid off some student loans for people that were going to some for-profit colleges, and that's all amazing and wonderful. You know, we don't want to take anything away because they are actually helping people. They're out here and they're doing something to help people. What I find interesting in one of the arguments when Occupy Wall Street first launched, you know, uh, several years ago, was a lot of the people that were taking, you know, place or going out to support them, um, a lot of the, and these are young, you know, white people that were out there protesting about the lack of resources, the lack of opportunities for themselves. So, you know, they saw the handwriting on the wall, they see what's happening, and they couldn't understand why they didn't have, you know, a large number of black people or people of color joining them. And what they failed to understand is that the same things that they were complaining about, we've been complaining about that for decades, you know, over a century, about, you know, there not being enough opportunities available and how, you know, we're being systemically, you know, oppressed. And they weren't trying to hear it then. And I'm pretty sure some of them understand. And, you know, they're hearing what we're saying now because I've seen them go into some of, you know, the communities um, in in Brooklyn and other places in New York. And they were helping, you know, some of the longtime residents. And so I think that's extremely important um, for us to recognize. But, I did a series um, talking about, you know, I'm trying to remember the name of that series, but I talked about the New Deal, and I talked about systemic racism and how um, unemployment for people of color has been double that of whites ever since the New Deal. And I talked about how the New Deal um, basically hurt blacks. A lot of people like to say that it helped blacks, but no, ah. I can't remember the name of the show. It'll come to me at the end. Oh, we already have a caller. For those that may want to call in, the telephone number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. Hello, caller. Mask who's calling? Hi, this is Hotep Kenyatta calling. How are you? Hi, Hotep Kenyatta. How are you? I'm okay. By the way, I love that um correlation you have made between the New Deal and increased um, suffering of African-Americans and people from the Pan-African diaspora happen to be living in America. Um, I think that civil rights, like human rights, um, their words and terms, phrases, but the letter of the law and the spirit of the law are two separate things, and very often um, our people get promises that aren't really fulfilled, whether it's Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation or 40 Acres and a Mule or the New Deal or Obama's um, concept of, you know, change. Uh, And that's probably because we're working within the parameters of a present and previous slave system. It may be time for us to create our own United Nations, vote on our own mayors and governors that shadow the existing systems mayors and governors set up our own internet um, 
And until we do that, it's going to be hard to act for justice from a system that is getting rich off our blood, sweat, and tears, I think. Well, the the issue there is why would we want a separate or to be separatist when, again, you were talking about our blood, sweat, and tears, our blood, sweat, and tears built this country. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about capitalism and the racism behind capitalism and even what you brought up now about how, you know, even though they're paying minimum wage, how, you know, blacks are being exploited and manipulated even in this current economy, this current, you know, um, corporate, corporate um, funded economy that we live in um, in America. And you're correct. We do need to open businesses in our communities. We do need to employ each other. We do need to build um you know, our own economies, if you will, but also build it within this system. Why do you feel that we should be, we should have a separate? Yeah, when I use the term um, separate, I wasn't referring to the classical definition of separatism, which would mean people go into different communities, homes, etc. What I mean is we should have shadow organizations and um, political committees that back us up while we benefit from the death of our people who helped to build this country. So you're right, by the way. I'm not suggesting at all that we should pull out and let all our people that suffered and died for us, their lives go down in vain because it's our blood and Native Indian blood that built the nation. So, yeah. Now, I just think it's time to do both things. Utilize the present system, just like Jewish folks do, but simultaneously start to build an infrastructure and the logistics so that when the system fails us, we're not so dependent on it. Meaning when they fail us in a hurricane, we have our own backup plan with about 50, whatever, 100 helicopters where we get some brothers and sisters to fly in with some water and food and medicine. Right now, we are so beholden present system that if it doesn't come through, which it usually doesn't, we're stuck holding an empty bag. Exactly. And you know, I can agree with that because I've spoken on the show before how I feel we need to have, you know, parallel um, you know, a parallel society. And but I've also stated about, you know, what happened in Wilmington, what happened in Tulsa, Rosewood, mm-hmm. a number of other prominent, you know, cities of color in which we quote unquote pulled ourselves up by our bootstrap and built you know, um, economically, educationally thriving communities only to have, you know, um, the poor whites come in and destroy it because we were being profitable, we were being, you know, um, we were happy and we weren't dependent upon the system, whereas they were suffering. Um, And so my question to you, and I've asked this of Christopher Everett and a number of other people because I think this is the issue we know how to build it. We have yeah. the resources. We have the knowledge. We have the education. We know how to build it. How do we protect it? Especially yeah, if we're doing the, it, you know, and, and we're building it within the current parameters of the capitalist system, you know, that that is called the U.S. government. Yeah, that's where the security angle comes in, and we usually don't cover it. I'll give you an example. Malcolm X's grandson was killed in Mexico. He had no security guard with him. 
Malcolm X was killed, right? And there weren't enough black folks in the audience to say, look, you know, some people are angry at Malcolm, let's protect him. Same thing with Martin Luther King going out and to, ha- to look at what's going on outside without someone thinking, brother, they can kill you. We often just don't check for security, whether it's internet security or personal security. So our people, you remember the, the Hispanic brother that shot the video footage of the Eric Garner choking and the cops then harassed him and arrested him? Yes, no in security in place. Yes, no security. Not a group of people to say, listen, brother, we're going to put you in a home for three months. We're giving you and your family the money for your food. We've got these two martial artists here. We've got some former cops. So that's a big missing ingredient, sister, security. We need security. I'm not talking of aggressively hurting people. I'm talking about security to make sure that when jealous people come to shut down our communities, we have the cameras in place. We have the sisters with their mace in place. We have the walkie-talkies. We have the codes in place so that we say a 1064 is going down. People know that means first, get your kids to safety. And secondly, some stuff's about to go down, so be prepared for the next level. Um, And that's been a flaw throughout much of our history. Uh, You know, we, we just assume that the system just wants us to work hard, and when we get our thing, they'll play fair. And it doesn't go down like that. Remember what happened in MOVE in Philadelphia. They had their own thing going on also, and they blew it up. Remember, they dropped a bomb on the building and poured in tons of water and killed many of them. That was um, John Africa's organization. And, you know, what's interesting about that is, you know, I've, I've read several books and I've watched a number of documentaries. And even throughout the civil rights movement, they were armed. You know, it's the guns that saved many of their lives. But when you're talking about that situation with Martin Luther King being on the balcony and how he was assassinated that day, um, yeah, they probably could have made, you know, taken more precautions, you know, as far as security is concerned, um, because they knew that he had a price on his head. Same thing with, you know, Malcolm X and, you know, a number of other civil rights leaders. But, again... You know, what's interesting is, and I've talked about this before, when they signed the Voting Rights Act, shortly thereafter, they signed another act um, called LEA. And with LEA, that's how we came to the broken windows, policing, and how whites were able to accuse blacks of any crime whatsoever. They made it up as they went along, and this is how they were able to take some of the rights away. Um, I've talked about how black people were for, you know, um, being armed and being able to bear arms and protect themselves. That's how many of them were able to kind of protect themselves when the white mobs came to Wilmington and Rosewood and Tulsa. But the way that they've set the laws up is that they've been slowly, you know, um, taking those rights away from people of color and leaving us in a very vulnerable situation. Mm-hmm. That's been mm-hmm. done on purpose. And, you know, um, also with the number of us that are going through the system and high recidivism rates and how that is tied to capitalism, and it's just just really interesting. But um, just looking at the whole thing, and I know you brought up MOVE in Philadelphia, and, you know, I've seen some of the documentaries about it, and, you know, I don't know a lot about that particular movement, but um, nothing can justify them dropping, you know, the bomb on those people. Um, The people in the neighborhood, the other people that lived around them, you know, they lost everything. They lost their homes. Um, 
and there's a lot of information that's being kept out of the public as far as that move. The only thing they're trying to, you know, portray to the public is that these people were obnoxious, they were disturbing everyone, and even the mayor at that time was saying that he did not give the order to drop that bomb. Mm. And so, you know, and they were talking about the young man that ran back into the burning house, and basically he wouldn't come out because there were some police officers there in the alley saying that if he came out, they would kill him. Mm. And so it was interesting about another young man that was out there um, in the alley, and one white officer went and got that young man and protected him. And the situation at work became so hostile after that situation that he had to basically retire from work with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder because other white officers were calling him nigger lover and a number of other things. And you're seeing that even being perpetuated today, you know, what happened in Ferguson, what happened in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Do you know going to indict that police officer that shot and killed that young man in a Walmart, even though Ohio is an open carry state? And he mm. wasn't pointing the, 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 the BB gun, the CO2 yeah, gun, yeah. at anyone. So it's just interesting, and this is why I say we need to attack the public policies um, as far as, like, the people that we, you know, have voted into office. I say vote them out. And even when we're talking about, you know, our Congress, you know, the senators and, you know, the representatives, we need to change the policies because if they're only, you know, elected one time, they still receive their salaries for the rest of their lives. So you only have to be elected once. See, there are a lot of things that need to change, um, a lot Mm -hmm. of policies that need to be addressed. But, no, I mean, I understand perfectly what you're saying there. And, you know, I advocate that we should have, you know, our own um, well-to-do, you know, cities and, um, you know, enclaves and what have you. And we've done it before, but I believe that if there's a lot of fear out there because whenever we start to do well, you know, some kind of way is taken away. I mean, with this last mortgage bubble bust, basically, you know, um, black wealth was decimated. Black wealth was decimated with this mortgage bubble bust. And so, again, it goes back to how to protect it, but also a changing of the minds of the people because, unfortunately, you had a number of people who were refinancing their homes with those arm loans, you know, know, basically getting the money out so that they could, you know, I'll just say in some cases spend it frivolously, you know, Mm -hmm. um, in an effort keep up with other people. I mean, we have to start changing some of these mindsets. And, I mean, it's their money, their equity to use as they see fit, but at the end, they ended up losing everything. And in some cases, it was a home that had been paid for for two or three generations. And so, you know, economics needs to be something that needs to be taught in our community. Um, you know, basic understanding of the stock market, basic understanding, because it's nothing but legalized gambling. And, yeah. with, you know, yeah, that's all it is. You know, with Black Wall Street, we had our own stock market, which was interesting, and it was doing better than the national stock market. And so all of that just um, came to a crash and burn. Yeah, and if I could add all that you're saying and us having an alternate currency. Some German business people have one, and when the German economy was going under, 
their um, strategy helped actually to stabilize uh, major portions of the German economy. So if you and I are doing business and I say to you 70% of your payment, or you say to me, however, will be in U.S. currency, imagine if 30 or 40% were in an alternative currency that we control, me, you, Jay-Z, Nas, I mean, you know, all the basketball players, all the janitors that put their money on the side. Then what we do is we build wealth, and, and if we don't complement, parallel their system with some of our own, we'll con- they'll just chop us down. You could have $10 million in the bank, and I have $5 million, and guess what happens? They decide that the currency will be devalued, or the, there will be changes on Wall Street in terms of legislation, which zip codes will get certain breaks, tax incentives. Um, I, I really just am a strong believer in doing two things simultaneously until we can do one thing and not be hit over the head. Yes, yeah, the whole thing is just really interesting, um, you know, how it comes about. And this is the reason why I feel that we need to have these conversations. We need to have yeah. conversations about, you know, where we fit in this country, um, you know, about dealing with the public policies, about um, – you know, having our, you know, being recognized as full citizens of this country because, you know, to this day we are not recognized as full citizens of this country. And when you say that, there are some people that sit there and, you know, with their mouths agape saying, well, how can you say that you're not a full citizen of this country? Well, look at the situation they have placed us in. You know, um, I had people get angry with me when I posted an article talking about we need another anti-lynching movement and um, how it was comparing, you know, these young people, men and women. It's not just young men being shot in the street. Young women, young black women are being shot and killed, you know, for sport as well. And basically, you know, we need to examine what's happening with these police departments. They need to be held to a higher account because they know that they can pretty much get away with everything and not be held account to it. Um, in, in the case of Darren Wilson, um, you know, they have $400,000 plus in the bank waiting on him. So in the event if he's charged mm-hmm. and so, the whole thing is I'm just looking at it, and it's like this, everything is stacked against us. But, yeah. um, you know, we're working on that, and that's why, you know, I'm talking about W.E.B. Du Bois and, you know, what he was, you know, putting out there and what his agenda was and basically how, you know, later leaders in our community, how they were, you know, influenced by, you know, um, W.E.B. Du Bois and, Hubert Henry Harrison and a number of other people that we need to go and pick up their work, go and pick up, you know, the information that they left behind because, you know, what's interesting is is that we're still dealing with the same issues. Here we are in 2015 yeah. wow. and we're dealing with the same issues that they were dealing with in 1915. Mm. <laughs> so, please keep my number um I'm working on several benches with colleagues. Um, please, if you, you know, when, when, when I hang up, so that hopefully we can talk, you know, uh, maybe have a private discussion. But W.E.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Marcus Garvey, Patrice Lumumba, all had some great pluses, but all also had 
I think, um, errors in either their judgments or calculations on some issues. And so I'm a strong advocate for, for our community evaluating each person's uh, position from a, you know, a really honest uh, position so that we can then move forward with the best of what each of them brought to the table. Same thing with uh, Lewis Howard Latimer and his inventions. You know, where did he fail? How did other people get credit for his work? What could he have done better? And that would lead to, you know, ultimate, hopefully, uh, freedom for us. And it's not us right now, our children, nephews, and, and grandkids. And religion factors into it, but that's a very um, sticky subject to discuss. So, but, but you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, we start talking about the religion, and um, I'm sure you're familiar with our stance as far as religion is concerned. Oh, no, uh, I'm not. Sorry, I'm a first-time caller. I'd never heard this show or seen it, so. What's your position on religion? I'm not sure. It may be similar to mine. I wouldn't say because I don't want to get shot. (laughs) (laughs) No, basically, um, the majority of us are atheists, um, free thinkers, non-believers, skeptics, what have you. So they they call you all pagan. Hmm. They call you all pagan. Yeah, 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 pagans. If you want. Yeah. Without, without <laughs> oh, yeah. knowing what it means, yeah, they don't know what it means, but they say pagans, yeah. Exactly, and they also don't realize that a lot of the, you know, pomp and circumstance and the traditions that they celebrate came from paganism. But yeah, when you try to oh, my goodness, of course. Yeah. Right, yeah. but, you know, again, you know, I was talking about, you know, the civil rights movement and, you know, I wanted to incorporate what was happening with the Black Power Movement because that all took place at the same time. And even though it seemed as though they were polar opposites, they had a lot in common. There was a lot that overlapped. And, you know, what I was explaining last week was, you know, the women played an integral, very important part in all of these movements. I mean, even, you know, today, you know, when uh, everything happened in Ferguson, you know, a lot of women, you know, behind that in, in galvanizing the resources and the people to get people back and forth to Missouri. And, you know, I've always stated on this show and in conversation about how there are people in other countries, you know, other on other continents, what have you, that support us. So even during a time with Ferguson, there were pictures of people from, you know, Holland, you know, the Dutch, you know, the black Dutch out there marching in support of the blacks in America. You had people in Afghanistan, people in Palestine, you know, holding up signs saying we support Ferguson. And, you know, a lot of people of color, a lot of history that has been, you know, covered up. You know, a lot of people don't even realize that there are black Palestinians, that there were slaves over in Palestine. And, you know, how that culture is pretty much put on a back burner. But even during the civil rights movement and the black power movement, that went all over the world. There are other people, you know, striving for liberation or struggling to get liberation at the same time we were. And they they took, you know, a lot of their cues and a lot of their motivation from us. I mean, go back to what happened in Somalia and Libya over in 1945 to 49. Um, People don't understand or realize that, um, you know, you had the Polynesian Panthers. So over in Hawaii, you know, I want you guys to look that up. I may talk about it a little bit later, but the Polynesian Panthers, you had the Latinos joining in with the Young Lords. 
um, that was started here in Chicago as an offshoot of the Black Panther movement. They had another chapter in Chicago, and Geraldo Rivera was their attorney in New York. So you had those people. You had Black Power, the Dali Panthers over in India. You had, you know, um, a civil rights movement and a Black Power movement over in London and Canada. They even had the Black Panthers of Israel. So I want you guys to go and look this up because, I mean, you know, this information is valuable. We have people that are standing with us all over the world. There are people that are looking and waiting for us to make a uh-huh. change, waiting for us yeah. to stand up and take our agency back. They're waiting uh-huh. because whether people understand this or believe this or not, America or black Americans pretty much set the tone. You know, and even though we yeah. regarded, you know, the South Africans when they were fighting against apartheid and, you know, we, you know, cheered when Nelson Mandela was, you know, freed from Robbins Island as well, their motivation, a lot of their motivation came from us. You know, Stephen Biko, you know, even Fela, Fela Kuti, you know, their motivation came from what we were doing over here. And that is why some of them are looking at us like, what has happened? Where is that passion? Where is that righteous anger? What it's, you're starting to see that come about now, again, especially with this Ferguson. I think that just set everybody off because I myself was extremely angry about, you know, all the situations, but that one right there, you know, it touched me um, in a different kind of way. And we have to stand up. We have to start putting these demands in place. And like you said earlier, you know, there are promises that are made, but promises that aren't kept. So, you know, again, I, I tied that into the Voting Rights Act. They gave us the Voting Rights Act, but then they signed LEA, which put in even harsher terms for um, policing communities of color. So, you know, what gains we made with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, they turned around and took it away and took us back even further. And that's why when we start talking about these things, we tell people to go and get the history. The history is a weapon. You need to be able to sit there and understand, because if you don't know what they're saying and you don't know the history, they can tell you anything and you'll believe it. And that is one of the issues that we have in this country is that we do not know our history. And interestingly enough, white people in this country don't know their history either. So don't let them fool you with that either, because if they knew their history, you know, they would understand that in order to eradicate or even whittle away at racism, that's going to have to come at the hands of white people. White people are going to have to police other white people. The burden of that job is an incumbent upon them, not us, because... We've, they've already made it clear that when we talk about discrimination and racism and being oppressed, they don't believe us. That's why I posted an article a couple of weeks ago when it was talking about the white allies, and it was saying if your white allies do not believe you when you talk about how black people are treated, then that person is not your friend. Mm-hmm. And that is the absolute truth. So it's just it's really interesting. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a few things, but... I was personally, you know, <laughs> offended when someone, you know, came to my Facebook wall and they were telling me that all I was doing was agitating, um, yeah. you know, 
Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I was agitating um, an already yeah. marginalized, you know, group of people. And we yeah. shouldn't talk about what was happening in yeah. Ferguson. And we should just be quiet. And see, again, that is white supremacy in action. They want us to huck and buck, shuck and jive, smile, and be happy in the face of our oppression. Because that makes yeah. them comfortable. It makes them yeah, uncomfortable actually, when we support them. Go ahead, babe. Yeah, Facebook um, shut down my Hotep Kenyatta page because I was posting a lot of information and graphics on topics like, you know, racism, imperialism, et cetera. But most of the, the strongest supporters of the racism were other black people who would say, if I discuss something about Ferguson, that I was spreading hate. So the concept is a black person can be beaten and killed, but if one of their supporters happens to do research or speak about it or even get angry, God forbid, you are the problem, not the person that kills you and not the system that perpetuates such exactly. mentalities. It's, uh, yeah, it's nothing different from... 300 years ago on a plantation, only we have cell phones and nicer sneakers and, you know, internet connections, but we're still um, that oppressed group that needs to come together. And you mentioned uh, some great points, and one of them was about people looking to American blacks, African Americans. We are the physical vision, vision look of oppression, right? But Africa is the place with the, res- with the physical resources, if you exclude human resources, so when those two groups come together, as opposed to looking down at each other, that is the solution to much of this. When we work with Africans and they look at us as equals and say, look, you all have more of the, the finances and the media power, but we got the oil, the diamonds, the gold, and you could go on for 10 years, well, let's work together. The stumbling block is religion and nationalism that keeps us from that. And Ma- Malcolm X was working on you know, um, the organization of African unity. And what did the system do? They created the African Union, which are basically the puppets, pimps, and hoes for the same slave master. So we have so much to work on. These types of discussions should be happening across the world with hundreds of people coming together and then sharing the notes and the research and then having committees vote on things to do um, so we have so much work ahead of us, and you probably notice it's unpaid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's no money in this, no money yeah, at all. And not, yeah, that's why yeah. I'm sharing the information because um, Red Ninja called him last week, and he expressed so eloquently when he said that, you know, finding out about the black history and, you know, about all of the different players in black history, he had to go to college and pay for the courses to get the information. And unfortunately, in many cases, with some black academics, they still want you to pay for it. They want you to buy the books and, you know, pay for them to come speak. And, you know, and that's all well and good because they have to earn a living. So I'm not Mm -hmm. taking that away, unfortunately, with a lot of our academic institutions of higher learning, is publish or perish. And they are being Mm -hmm. forced into position. It's no longer, you know, about the the education of the young minds that are coming through. It's now about publishing and bringing money into the university. But Mm -hmm. this is why I do these shows and to put the information out there. So, again, you know, I had people saying that, you know, this is a hate page because I was talking about what was happening in Ferguson and other places and posting the links to, you know, stories that were out there. And mainly it was, you know, um, angry white men 
um, that was accusing me of having. I mean, I blocked so many people; it was unreal. And then oh, I had a non-black yeah. Oh yeah, and I had a non-black yeah. person named Ebony that told me that you know all I'm doing is getting frustrated and angry, and I should go and read um, "Where Do We Go From Here" by Martin Luther King, and that Martin Luther King um, stopped fighting about discrimination and decided to do the Poor People's Campaign. And I'm like, do you really think I'm that stupid? And so I'm just sitting there because I explained to her, Ebony, the non-black person named Ebony, about the Poor People's Campaign and how with that particular campaign, it incorporated poor whites because they were getting shafted as well. But it was a way of bringing everyone together and looking out for the common good of everyone and then lobbying for, you know, economic justice and housing justice, so on, and, you know, educational opportunities. Because in many cases, you know, poor whites are, you know, uh, they're being affected as well, but they still have the privilege of having white skin, which is a paradox within itself. And, you know, we're going to do a show on that eventually um, in the future when I think everybody is ready to have that conversation. But, you know, with the Poor People's Campaign, then it was starting to deal with the classism in this country and his being able to bring people of all colors together, you know, at the bottom of the socioeconomic, you know, ladder there, that is that was a threat. That was the major threat and that was the main reason I believe that his life was taken because it went beyond black and brown people at that point. Yeah. And he found yeah. a way to bring all of the races together. And and as I spoke about last week and I've spoken in, you know, about this on other shows what a lot of people don't understand is you have white people. Now, what is whiteness? You know, how do you define whiteness? And I talked a little bit about that last week. And we had Dr. Jeffrey Perry on the show, and he talked about, you know, how whiteness is defined. And basically, the only real, if you will, white people in this country are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. However, their numbers are far and few between, so what they did was they started a social contract, and that's how you have these ethnic whites, or as I call them, honorary white people. Because initially, Irish people, Dutch people, Italian people, so on and so forth, they were not considered white. As a matter of fact, nobody considered white. We didn't have the categories of white and black. It's the ruling class that implemented that in an effort to continue to control and oppress black people. And so this part of the social contract is for them to be honorary whites or ethnic whites, if you will, they have to continue, you know, to perpetuate white supremacy and the oppression of black people, you know. But what's happening now, and this is what I'm trying to get people to understand that's happening now, is you see these people, the Tea Partiers and the Libertarians and the ultra-conservative, you know, Republicans, and in particular the poor and the middle class, you know, white people that are part of those groups, they are out here protesting and demanding their country back. They want to take it back 100 years, and you know, which will take us all the way back to Reconstruction. So I want people to understand Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And so I want people to understand that. But they basically, they want a new social contract. And by getting a new social contract, that means they will continue to oppress people of color, particularly black people. And so, yeah. you know, we're trying to 
explain how all of this is coming about. So when you see them out there protesting, you know, these tea partiers, you know, that's what it's about. You know, they're angry that there is a black man in the White House, which gives, you know, people of color some semblance of hope, not only in this country, but in other places. And it's interesting when you brought up Africa, because what's happening over in Africa, Africa is still being pillaged and raped. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the black people in Africa, you know, they don't even get to enjoy, you know, they didn't understand the value of, you know, the gold. and the, It was just something that was there. You know, they just thought it was a rock. You know, most people don't realize when you first get a diamond, it's dirty and it's brown and it's black and you have to clean it off. But um, they, it was just something that was there naturally. It was when the, you know, colonists came in and gave it value. And, again, that goes back to something that we talked about as far as social constructs again, which ties into what you said um, a little bit earlier about having, you know, our own currency. And, you know, yeah, you know how the laws are written in this country. They will never allow that to happen. But the currency, you know, system that we're on is a social construct. It only has value because we allow it to have value. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if we were to challenge that, and but again, um, that's what By happens way, I met, when you lack I, power. I meant alternate currency. I didn't mean actually fiat currency. So when I said alternate currencies or alternate monetary systems, I meant things that wouldn't necessarily require government approval. Because if you require government approval, then again you're caught right back on the plantation. Um, with the gold in Africa, Mansa Musa uh, was probably, may still have been the richest person. What has happened with gold and oil in Africa is I think just like with us and hip-hop and what we create, we take for granted what is easy to access in some ways. But B, some of the diamonds and other resources, it does require certain equipment to get to. And if you're in Africa or America getting hit upside the head all the time, there is limited time to reflect on things like extracting and cutting diamonds, et cetera. So other people um, come in and get it. And, and I think that if we worked with our African family and the, you know, Papua New Guinea, Western Papua New Guinea family, that these types of things could change because we've all been talking the same similar sentiments for years and uh, seem to be going backwards but I have, I have a few projects um, with some colleagues. We definitely, I'm um, hoping you, you, after your show, after you, you know, deal with whatever radio business you have to do, um, I can hit you to some, some, some great stuff because our people are being destroyed. We're, we're dying off. Yeah, we have Red and Ninja on the line with us right now. Hey, hi, Red. How are you? Very good. How are you guys? Hey. Hey, good. Good. You know, we were just talking about, you know, what's happening in this country. And, you know, again, you know, for the people that are out there, you know, there are other countries, other, you know, continents, if you will. You know, the people are looking up to us, and they're watching closely. And that's why, you know, when I would see pictures of, you know, people from other countries saying, you know, we had pictures of, um, Asians, you know, uh, Asian Americans, um, and other people from other countries saying that we stand with Ferguson, and they were marching in their own respective cities or in their own respective countries. And, you know, I just, it's just so, it's heartbreaking. It's very disheartening to know, 
and this is just coming from personal experience, to feel as though we have no value, that we've never contributed anything to this society. And this is what they tend to tell a lot of people of color. And this is why I share this information, because I just think, you know, it's important for people to know, you know, just how powerful and influential we really are. Um, You know, I talked a little bit earlier about some of the... Um, you know, different people that, you know, took their cues from the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Panthers. You know, we had the Polynesian Panthers. You had, you know, the Black Panthers over in Israel. I mean, even though that sounds hard to believe, yeah, they actually did. Look it up. Tell you guys, you know, fact check. You were going to be amazed at what you find. Absolutely yeah, amazed. Yeah, no doubt about that. There's no doubt yeah, about that. You know, and, the, and the thing about that, too, is like, the this whole aspect of telling you know the African American community of imposing on them this idea that they are lower than is itself the trick. Exactly. Because they know how much African Americans have contributed to. They know how much African Americans have contributed to society. They know that we've contributed to music culture. They know how much we've contributed to financial culture. They know how much we've contributed to family structure, to family culture. And they know how much we contributed to the arts in general. And they know how much we contributed to the economy. We are a slave-based economy. We built this country on the backs of slaves, and we built them on the backs of indentured servitudes. We built them on the backs of immigrants who did not come of their own accord. So that's the lie. The lie is to get you to believe that you haven't done it, and they know that that's a lie. They know that we've contributed too much, and that we're not going anywhere until we get equal rights. They can't scare us off. We're not going anywhere. Exactly, and that's why, you know, I give so much credit to the millennials, because the millennials are out there leading the charge right now. And I'm like, you know, I am so happy for those babies, you know, and that's why it's like whatever I can do to encourage them, you know, that's what we're doing and encouraging the people of our generations because many of them are, you know, afraid. And many of them remember that a lot of leaders that we had in this country, how, you know, and this was done on purpose when we would have someone that was a strong black leader their lives would be cut short. If their lives weren't cut short through, you know, being assassinated, then they were dragged through the mud. Their names were just, you know, basically, you know, being trampled upon. But that's why I'm telling them, look and see what's happening around the world. You know, I talked about the Polynesian panther, and, you know, um, it was founded founded by New Zealand-born Polynesians. And, I mean, just go and look this up. You have the young lords that were Puerto Ricans. It started out as a Puerto Rican gang. And then they pulled it together and started taking cues from the Black Panthers and formed their own. It was all over here in Chicago on the the, um, northwest side called Wicker Park. I used to live over there. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of these guys. And if you go over to DePaul University, for those that want more information about the the young lords, DePaul University has, you know, archives of the newspapers. And even with a lot of these other groups that I'm talking about, you know, a lot of these universities and colleges have the archives of the newspapers, of the flyers, of the books, and all of that. Go back and look it up. You know, people laugh when I refer to Wikipedia, but when I refer to Wikipedia, I want you to go down to the bottom of the page. At the bottom of the page, they cite the sources. Go and read that. 
that is what also, I want you to uh uh-huh. I was gonna say also um definitely take advantage of your public library. Um, because your you know your public library will frequently archive these articles, and there are so many books out there that you can actually read about this. And I think that's the yeah. thing is like um, the number one trick of the American government in regards to how African Americans are treated is to get you to forget if they can make you forget about what our history actually is. They've done eighty percent of their job. Because they, if they can make you feel unvalued, then they can tell you how they wish you need to be valued. They can give you your value. They can give mm-hmm. you your circumstances, and they can give you your social standing. And it's not a damn near sight better. And, in fact, it's frequently far worse than what we give ourselves when we have an understanding of our economy and of our history and our capabilities um, as, a, as people living in the United States of America. Yeah, and the exactly. British did did a similar trick on the Irish. Um, and what has happened over time is that, as opposed to the white Protestants ruling, mm-hmm. they have incorporated other white groups, but not on their level. They have become the buffer class. So that buffer class of white people, rather than uniting with black folks, who they whom they have been told are inferior. They fight, yeah. fight, 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 fight for their little pieces of chicken. So I consider them the serfs, S-E-R-F-S, and I consider us the slaves, S-L-A-V-E-S. Not that all of us are mentally enslaved, but without question, when I try to deal with banks and other types of institutions, purely based on my skin tone, regardless of my background and portfolio, their position is here comes a, an eager nigger. They don't see the brilliance and they won't see it. So there we get to the brain. How do we change people's perceptions in their brain of a group when some of their leaders know the truth, but they don't want them to know? Um, I think exactly. I, we have a tough challenge, tough battle. Well, yeah, I was going to say, and like oh, yeah. you, you were, Kim, you were saying earlier too, how a lot of our black leaders um, also, like we have a lot of black people that sadly work against their own better judgment. Yes. In regards to public policy, and, and especially in regards to the financial crisis, I mean, it's right. unbelievable how many Black Republicans and Black Libertarians are actually out there defending um, our financial institution and saying, like you mentioned earlier, that we need to pull up our own bootstraps and make it out here. But that's the trick. The trick is exactly. <laughs> the, the, the the trick is to get people to feel like they're not doing damn near good enough. Um, in regards to their own lives, but the thing is, you can't blame a set of people for giving for being given a set of circumstances that are actively working against them, exactly. right? So you got to change exactly. the circumstances. You have to change what the ground. You have to change what the ground level economy is, and you have to take an objective view of the financial crisis and say it's not enough to just throw people in jail, but keep the same system in place that put them in these compromising positions. That system mm-hmm. has to be changed, and you can't blame. Exactly. I mean, you, like the thing is, you can't blame the players for playing the game. You got to change the game, and too many black leaders exactly. are not willing to actually change the game. But they're going to blame players that had no choice but to play along. Exactly. And the only, winning, the option, the only winning option is not to play. Mm-hmm. But the players aren't only oh, yeah. just the brothers oh, and sisters wait, 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 wait. that are robbing a bank. 
No, I was just going to say that goes back into what we were talking about earlier, how we have, you know, the Booker T. Washington types around that are telling everybody else to wait, you know, the other black people to wait, while they themselves are trying to gain. And they're further perpetuating white supremacy. And, you know, and again, in what you were talking about, um, Hotel Kenyatta, when he was talking about the buffer class, that is exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about, you know, these tea partiers, these libertarians, and the ethnic white. That is exactly what they are. They are a buffer class to the ruling class from people of color, namely black people. Correct. Go ahead, Hotel Kenyatta. Yeah, and uh, the point he was making about the um, – he didn't use the word criminal element. But what happens in Western societies – we call it Western, but it's a misnomer – is that the real criminals on the top are the bankers and the politicians, right? But the young thugs who may, you know, sling some rocks and make – thousand dollars a week, etc. they pale in comparison financially to one executive who does what's called white-collar crime. But who gets locked away? Who are the SWAT teams going in to kick down the doors of? Who do we see on reality TV shows getting hit upside the head? So we have criminal cycles running our nation and most nations, and the young people who tend not to have an education that is culturally um, informative, because you could have someone with a PhD who is a part of the problem. When they do the wrong things, when there are few opportunities, they become examples of what a real criminal is. When I think the real criminals are the upper class in this system, not that hard work, intelligence, and finances are necessarily bad, but I think the way they have gotten in our Western um, societies is a bad thing. And what's interesting about all of that is, you know, again, I had to talk a little bit about the Poor People's Campaign. When it was bringing all the people together, you know, um, you know, different classes, but mainly the poor whites were being incorporated into, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s or the civil rights agenda. And they were joining up because they understood that they were being oppressed in their own way as well. And that's one of the issues we have now, you know, like we were just talking about the buffer classes. You see them out there protesting about how they want their country back. And basically they were given, you know, privileges and benefits, you know, uh, in, in their efforts to continue to oppress, you know, people of color and black people. And, yes, we have to do a lot of work. We have to talk about it. But, you know, would you would you agree that there's time for us, that it's time for us to put together another Poor People's Campaign? that brings all the different races together to find some type of, um, you know, equity or something that's just going to basically level the playing field, you know. But but unfortunately, you know, in that particular scenario, you have a lot of white people out here who feel that they are being discriminated against. They feel that, you know, people of color are more racist against them. It's, It's just the whole narrative has been turned and turned on its head. You know, and how did we allow that to happen? Well, Occupy Wall Street also um, have been a part of the problem. They haven't obviously looked at the core problems of our people. They're looking at how can we get a piece from the 1%. And how we let it happen, I think, is that our leadership in every sector have sold us out. And I think that we may have 
not necessarily sat back, but we may have assumed that just because the person comes from our community and is now in charge of the school system or is a mayor, governor, president, or the local preacher or sage or, you know, local pimp, that they're going to then reach back and help, and they're not doing it. Case in point, because I deal with some of these folks, the average celebrity entertainer. They are not empowering our community. They are not coming in the hood and saying, look, I've got a thousand laptops and I want to get some school kids together and give it out. Um, so we are partially responsible for our own demise. In a way, I don't want to say blame the victim type, but at some point after 400 darn years, someone's got to, you know, we've got to say, wait a minute, you know, we've been going down this alley all the time and get hit over the head. Why don't we try some different approaches? And the few that try, I think, are outnumbered by the many that are just uh, sheeple, including most of our relatives, at least in my yeah. case. I don't know about you all. <laughs> well, no, right, that, right. You're, absolutely, you're absolutely right about that because, um, you know, and that's just, you know, one case in point is, you know, once again, our actual education system in and of itself is a huge liability. And um, you have many people within not just the black community, but in a lot of minority communities that actively are working against, in certain cases, our education system when it comes to the curriculums that we teach. And not just about black history. Like, this whole thing that's going down in Texas with the revisionism that's been going on, there are actual school educators that are actively working to suppress black history and the entire history of the Atlantic slave period. You have actual teachers and school boards that are actually out there saying that um, the period of slavery was the best time for our African-American ancestors and are actually teaching this in schools. And yeah. nobody is saying a word. They're not saying mm -hmm. they're not saying anything about the civil rights movement or anything of that nature. They're right. actually looking to revise history. And this is not right. like some fringe movement within one state, even though Texas is by far the worst offender because they're in the heart of the Bible Belt. But you have several um, institutions that are looking to actually suppress the history of black history. And it's like I said last week, you don't get Marcus Garvey in high school. You don't get Robert Green Ingersoll in high school. Right. You don't get W.E.B. Du Bois. You don't get Mary B. Bethune. And if you do, you get the whitewash narratives. They're actually looking to erase this history from our history books and our education system is complicit. Go ahead. Yeah. My, my own father, and this will, because some listeners may hear the talk and not say, oh, I don't believe that. I can tell you, my father, he went from being very uh, pro-African, wearing African outfits, to before he died, he told me the following. And I say this to people not because I don't respect my father, but because people need to know this stuff is real. He said, son, one of the best things that happened for black people was when we got enslaved. And it just blew oh, my no. mind. Wow. Right? Yeah, it just yeah. blew my mind. So yeah. you, it's not just theory that the brother is talking about. This is fact. My own father said it a few months before he died. And we had a long debate after that because, you know, I was like, what? You mean lynchings? That benefited us? Oh, you mean raping our women, taking our children? So the mindset right. of many of our elders, and we have to be honest about it because if we don't say the truth, what happens is it gets brushed away. The mindset of the average black elder, brown elder, is enslavement. And they are the ones, my father was well-respected in many uh, circles, 
But with that mindset, imagine the people that he interacted with. When he interacted with a white person, imagine the different business tactics he might step back on because the person's white. I mean, you operate from your core belief, and if your core belief is that you're inferior and deserving of being a slave, then, of course, all bets are off on oppression because you will be oppressed. Right. And, um, yeah. one of the, and one of the biggest reasons for that, honestly, um, is because if if everybody understood the history of America and if our black people actually read the history books and understood what was going on in this country, there would be another mutiny that happened exactly. within the country. Exactly. There's already a mutiny. And exactly. Ferguson is the result of 500 years of relations below the surface that have been suppressed. It just exactly. happens that in the 21st century, in the age of information, we can we have video cameras on the ground now that can paint a picture of things that um, the majority of our leaders needed to keep hidden. Biggest things about um, about what you said. Now, I'm sorry to hear about your dad because that's that's heavy. One of the biggest yeah, reasons why it it's yeah, it's crazy. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, one of the biggest reasons why I deconverted in the first place. Um, was because I was exposed to just how much slavery actually shaped the mindset of African Americans for an inferior mindset. And the thing about about Abrahamic religion in particular is that it needs you to feel inferior. It needs you yeah. to feel as exactly. if you can't do it on your own. You have no capability of existing apart from this white god over here. Exactly. You you need exactly. you need this over here in order to, to in order to just carry yourself and live. Yeah. You know. Exactly. And, so, and adi- additionally, you actually the more you suffer, supposedly the more special you are. So if your right. people are really suffering, exactly. it's because you're God's chosen people. Meanwhile, the folks on top are getting rich, and they go to yeah. the church or the mosque or the synagogue. Exactly. Exactly. And you are absolutely correct about that. That's why, you know, we're talking about it. And, you know, again, I'm going back to the Booker T. Washington types that, you know, are getting rich. And, and, and it's just the whole thing. It's, it's, it's the same story. It's the same game. It's just names change. And mm-hmm. you have a certain group of people that, you know, um, claw their way to the top by, you know, shitting all everybody else. And, you know, basically – it becomes, you know, to their advantage to keep everyone else oppressed and to make them believe that they are fighting for them. That's why mm-hmm. I Im- implore everyone to go and look at the records of the Congressional Black Caucus. Look at their records. Look at what they've been voting on. And, you know, as Red Ninja was saying about how, you know, we're able to share the information a lot faster now because of the technology and we have cameras on the ground. Yeah, that's why net neutrality is so so dangerous this is why you hear us talking about it and telling you all to contact your legislators about that, about why it's important for you guys to know what's happening out here. Because there are a lot of people that feel the same way that we do, There's a lot of people that support us, and we're able to find that through the Internet now, but if they, if, if net neutrality goes through and they're able to filter out and, you know, and slow the Internet down, you won't be able to get the information from one city to the next as quickly. They may be able to filter some things out. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking about 
different things with, you know, the Black Panther Party and the Civil Rights Movement, you know, a lot of people didn't know that we had people in, you know, your yeah, Uruguay or Uruguay, you know, supporting us. They didn't know that we had people in Israel, Japan, China, France, England, Germany, Sweden, and, you know, South Africa, Mozambique, you know, they were supporting us. We had people, I'm going to give you the names of some other organizations, you know, you had people in Southern California, they they. Um, called their groups the Brown Berets. You had some white allies in Chicago that called themselves the White Patriot Party. You had some Chinese people in San Francisco, and they called themselves the Red Guard. And I talked about the Young Lords already, and then you had, you know, some senior citizens that organized the Gray Panthers to address the human and civil rights. So, I mean, we have some allies out there, We have, but we have to be able to find each other. No, we're not going to agree on everything, but, again, it's, it's about, you know, um, putting forth, you know, the effort and demanding justice for all across the board, but, you know, not just sitting there and allowing people to use us as the whipping post. And that's what they've yeah. been doing. Yeah. Um, the thing the thing that we really just have to understand is that um, it's not it's not over. It You can't, we cannot give up. We right. can't give up. We can't stop. We cannot allow ourselves to be beaten to the ground, right? We have to get on our feet. We have to march forward. And we have to insist on getting the information and and actually processing it and understanding what it actually means for today. Um, I, but I want to I want to come back um, to this to the idea of you know the Booker T. Washington type. Um, one thing that no doubt the three of us more than likely already know is that a lot of the modern Booker T and, and and this is not I'm not disrespecting Booker T Washington by saying this because um the man's a legend but the thing that he was wrong about and that the thing that especially like black christian leaders are very wrong about is simply saying that if we keep still people will eventually see that we are trying to look out for our best interests and they will actively engage us in helping us. But that's not the case. The minute you put exactly. down your gun and you put your hands up and allow a team of people to put guns to your face, they can and will shoot you because they know that you're vulnerable. Exactly. Right? Don't exactly. allow yourself to become vulnerable to agendas that want you to be weak. And like this whole the issue with slavery and things of that nature, and this whole aspect of you know black Christian leaders expecting us to sit down and be quiet. Here's the thing that um, that you got to that you got to look at. What are they doing when they're asking us to be quiet? Exactly. Who? How are they actually campaigning on our behalf to actually make things better? How are they changing their circumstances? They're not. Look at exactly. every black Christian leader and what they're actually preaching and teaching. They're not telling us to sit down and shut up because they want the best thing for this world and for this country. They're doing it because they don't care about this world or this country. They exactly. care about the next world. Exactly. And they're trying, and they're, they're doing their best to bring on the exactly. end of this world so they can go to the next one. And, you know, that goes, we've talked about this, and this is why religion is so dangerous. 
because they have a lot of people not caring about what is happening in the here and now. They're caring about, you know, getting their mansion in heaven, walking on the streets of gold, singing in the, you know, the heaven choir all day, whatever it is they're supposed to be doing. And there are many of them that are trying to rush on the destruction of this world. And this is why, you know, this is what makes it extremely dangerous. And this is why you hear us out here. And while I understand for some people why they have chosen to take on religion, because, again, you know, I've talked about it on this show. In in many cases, you know, religion, in particular Christianity, although it was forced upon the Africans that came to this country, and, and you know, um, we had someone on the show before, and they were talking about how um, Christianity was in Africa before, you know, the, the um colonists went over there, but it was yeah. practiced in a lot a lot of different ways. But, you know, I'm talking about the Africans that were brought here and the ones that it was forced on. Basically, Christianity, to a certain degree, has been the only thing that has been somewhat shielding us from white supremacy. Even though we deal with it on a daily basis, uh, it seems as though Christianity, once they break that down and, you know, get through that particular shield, then there are some of them that are going to have a field day with the black community, and we're not prepared. We are not no, prepared. But, no, and um, it's just it's a it's it's really just it's a shame, and it's one of those things that um, finding out about you know these topics and like actually understanding the role of slavery and you know our black communities and finding out like the extent to which the church was actually played in shaping us for better and for worse was the thing that it was the first crack in my armor that helped me to understand why Christianity, though beneficial at the time was ultimately not a good worldview for me and helped with my deconversion. And that's because once you get past that initial like shield and once you once you get past the initial step of like looking at the history the next step is asking yourself what does christianity what is christianity actually actually telling us that's actually going to help us and exactly. what christianity is essentially saying is that you can't do it on your own and you don't have the power surrender your power surrender exactly. your responsibility surrender your ability to change your circumstances. Give it they, to exactly. me. And yep, that's an attitude that's an attitude that we cannot abide by because surrendering your ability to reason and to understand issues for yourself is the thing that's going to keep you it's gonna keep our children and our grandchildren prospering. They have two exactly. different messages though. The slave master doesn't operate on that paradigm on that way of thinking, they operate on, if they want abomination, they're going to abomination no matter what anyone says. That on the flip side, what they tell the masses of um, financially poorer um, religious adherents is submit. What they mean is submit to their will, but they put a, a phrase, God or Allah, in the middle. It doesn't mean, though, because I have some Christian friends and Muslim friends who are very proactive as, as, may, as crazy as it may sound, I have several reverends in my circle who are, uh, I mean, one has a nonprofit that he's doing some stuff in his community, and it's totally outside of his church 
There are some people who are really good people, meaning the average religious person is not rich, nor are they out there raping people. They're trying to be a better person, right? The problem is it makes them ineffective as deep thinkers, usually, not all, but usually. And I I can even tie it to Buddhism because most of my Buddhist friends, when I mention racism and Ferguson, they have this whole, oh, it's going to be okay. We're all equal. We all have the same blood, this, that, and the other. And so that also is not empowering because what it does is it tells the oppressed groups, don't worry about getting hit upside the head, killed, raped, having your nations bombed. We all have the same blood. That's a dumb moment. Like, yeah, we have, we have, you know, we have a chest, we have toes. How does that save my people? Exactly, and that goes back to what I was earlier about how there are certain entities, certain people who want us to smile and clap and rock back and forth and shuck and jive and all of that and smile in the face of our oppression and for us to say it's all right, Jesus will will fix it. And they want to keep people in that particular mindset. And for those of us that do not adhere to that, and we're like, oh, no, that that's not going to work. You're going to have to change your policies. You're going to have to change, you know, your, your methodologies. You're going to have to change a number of things. You know, we are considered somewhat of a threat. And, you know, what's mm-hmm. interesting is I have to tie it into the secular community because I've been out there and I've been on their case about certain things. And what's interesting is there are some people in this community who get angry with the fact that we have black groups or black identified groups or Latino identified groups or what have you and they they're, they're trying to paint us as excuse me as separatists and that is incorrect because the thing is is that the default for atheists when you think about what an atheist is is a white well educated well to do man and so we have our different groups out here, and we're out here, we're talking about what's happening and addressing the public policies and addressing the issues, you know, white supremacy, white privilege. And there are some of them that get angry, especially since some of us are talking about social justice. And that's why, you know, some of them are in the mindset that once we start talking about leveling the playing field, equality, social justice, that means anti-white. And that is incorrect. But, see, the problem is they're used to being the center of everything, having everything revolve around them and what they're doing. And then when we form our own groups and our own, you know, um, our own, you know, paths as to what we're trying to do, perceived as a threat. And, you Are know, you not only with white atheist groups? That's one of the things I'm referring to, yes. Wow, that's interesting. It's almost like the gay community. I have gay friends that tell me, brother, you don't know what it's like to be a black gay dude. I'm like, what you talking about? Don't you all work together? And they say, hell no. We have the most. So that's amazing. In every circle, we have the bottom. Yeah, you know, in, in the gay community, there's a lot of racism. I want to do a webcast on that, talking about the racism and even the transphobia within the LGBTQ community. But we've done shows talking about the racism, you know, in the atheist community and the sexism and the homophobia and, you know, all of those different things. And what's interesting is you'll, you know, hear some of them say some things. I think Deborah's on the one. I'm going to bring her in, but I need to make my point. Um, basically, you'll hear some of them, some of the white atheists, try to tell, you know, other people, mainly black atheists, when we start talking about white supremacy and racism, they'll say that they used to be 
racist or they used to be sexist or they used to be homophobic, but once they became an atheist, all of that went away because they attribute those negative characteristics to religion and religion only. So they feel as though that they can't be those things once they let go of religion. And so they get angry with me when I tell them, when I hear them saying that to me, I'm like, either you think I'm incredibly stupid and naive or you're delusional. Because when I hear that, all I'm hearing is that you were baptized and, you know, the blood of Jesus came and wiped all your sins away. You were once a filthy rag and now you're clean as the driven snow. That is what I am hearing. And they don't realize that they're bringing a lot of that religiosity over to this community. And it's just interesting. But, you know, what's interesting about the whole thing is that there are quite a few, you know, groups of color on Facebook and other places around the Internet. And, you know, while there's no problem having white people, you know, participate and be a part, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I feel as though the white people are trying to police our groups, are trying to police our pages, because I had several of them say, well, you shouldn't post A, B, C, or D. You know, like I said earlier, because it's agitating and already, you know, marginalized group, and they're trying to police us. And one time when I was doing a Twitter chat, I just put it out there. I'm like, are you afraid that our version of free thought will not line up with your version of free thought? Because a lot of what's being put out there is veiled racism against black and brown people. And when I start pointing out different things that are being said by Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and how it's veiled, and people go back and they look at it and they look at it from a different perspective, we're right. And so, again, you know, it's interesting that you have to be very careful about what you do and who you associate with. So, again, like I said, they're trying to set the narrative or, 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 you know, create the narrative that, you know, a lot of these black groups are separatist groups when that is not the case because I've walked into predominantly white, you know, atheist arenas, whereas I would be the only black person in there. In many cases, I was either ignored in other cases, I was treated like I was an enigma or some type of anomaly, you know, asking me questions like, well, what does it feel like to be a black atheist? And then, you know, I had to respond sometimes, well, I don't know what it feels like to be a white atheist. You tell me how that feels. And then they get upset and angry because they feel as though yeah. I'm popping off my mouth. But it's just, an, it's just an ignorant question. You know, we created an yeah. FAQ. Say, go read that before you ask us any questions. Because, um, and again, you know, you have some blacks in this community. Anyway, let me get off of this. But, you know, we have to kind of pull, you know, all of this together, and we have to start holding people to account. We have to start charging our, you know, politicians and charging the people who are in leadership positions. And then this mm-hmm. is the thing. There are self-appointed leaders out here. These are not people oh, yeah. that we want to lead us. They appointed themselves, you know, and that's in mm-hmm. every area. But, um, you know, again, we have to find ways, and this is why we have a first in the family humanist scholarship, you know, giving some of these young people money and encouraging them to go to college because we are going to have to cultivate these young people into being the type of leaders that we need for them to be, which means we have to talk to them. You can't bully them. You can't talk down to them. You have to talk to them as equals, and then you have to be able to sit down and show where, in some cases, where their thinking falls short 
and and encourage them to think critically and you know logically in a lot of different areas, but it takes a lot of work. And unfortunately, for many people, and this is you know a, an issue in the church. This is an issue in the secular community as well. We can get people to come to parties. We can't get them to come to a lot of the meetings. We can't get them to come out and donate a lot of time when we volunteer in the community. And it's just interesting because I believe that the groups of color is what's going to change the, you know, the public or the PR for the atheist community is because yeah. we're going back to the community and we're trying to help folks, whereas with a lot of the white atheists, all they're trying to do is mock religion all day and mock people all day. And majority of the people that are religious are people of color. So, again, I want the people of color out there to think about that. While oh, you're yeah, sitting and there and, and co-signing their bullshit when they're putting your own people down and making them feel even less than a human being. Go ahead, Red. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I was going to say, too, um, like, one thing that I, I love what you said about, like, you know, certain atheists only coming after parties and doing anything like that and not wanting to actually, frankly, um, <laughs> some atheists, as as much as people really hate to say it, some atheists treat atheism like a religion. And like exactly. most religious people, some atheists are only there because they have a need to belong where they didn't belong in church. Exactly. And exactly. it becomes a liability when you only have people that want to be atheists out of rebellion. They only want right. to be atheists to belong. They only want to be atheists to stick a middle finger up to their parents. They only want to be an atheist to stick a middle finger and be rebellious to authority. But once you've gotten that down, the next step is, okay, what are you going to do to change it? If you're not doing right. anything to actually change your circumstances, then I can only think of one reason why you wanted to be here. The only reason you want to be here is because you just want yourself to be known. You only want yourself to be popular. You only want it for yourself. You're only in it for yourself and yourself only, and it's all about you. That is selfish. We have enough of that attitude from our religious leaders that are only about themselves. Right, and it it seems as though that type of narcissism is encouraged in this community because, you know, as Dr. Hutchinson says, and I agree with her wholeheartedly, atheism is not enough. And that's why, you know, I'm bringing back the poor people's campaign component to this conversation. We, you know, in my opinion, you know, we need to be out here working on, you know, furthering the civil rights movement because, Regardless of what people believe, the civil rights movement was a secular movement. The only reason why scripture in the Bible was introduced was because the white nationalists were using scriptures in the Bible to justify the maltreatment or mistreatment of blacks. And so they had to fight fire with fire. And there are quite a few black preachers that have, you know, basically, you know, told the truth and said that, you know, a lot of blacks are looking for this messianic, you know, type of character to come in and to save them, and that's never going to happen. Okay? And the fact that they admitted that, you know, that right there, you know, I had to, you know, stand up and clap, but they finally admitted that. It is going to have to be secular-based. But, you know, um, again, you know, we have to deal with a lot of different issues. And 
the atheist community, unfortunately, is a direct mirror of society at large. It's just a smaller microcosm, but we still face the same issues of, you know, you have, um, you know, um, racist, sexist, so on and so forth. But what's interesting in this community is that there are a lot of poor atheists and secularists and free thinkers in this community. And I yeah. even put out there to the community, I said, even if you don't want to help people that is outside of the secular community, why won't you help the people that are inside of the secular community? I, I remember a couple of years ago I saw people putting status updates about their homes being in foreclosure, about them being homeless and all types of issues. Why do we not have any programs in place? to help those in need even within this community. And many of them will still continue to exactly. say that it's not my problem. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is why that libertarian ideology is so freaking dangerous because they don't care about each other. So you know they sure as hell don't care about the rest of us. And I've been trying oh, to get that through. Go ahead, Beth. And Oh, and let's note the next thing that happens when atheists complain about Okay, so you have, like, actual poor atheists, which is true. The atheists that are low in the middle class um, that are actually out here asking for help, you know, that are actually going out here looking for grants to try to actually keep their homes afloat. What happens next when atheists will then say, oh, well, I don't need to help them. They need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They can do it, right? Next thing that happens is that that atheist ends up having to go back to the church that they disowned Exactly. Right? They go back to the church. They go back and they actually get this outpouring of the Christian community um, that's giving them food, that's giving them water, that's giving them scholarships, that's giving them free financial education classes, Alcoholics Anonymous classes, all of these things. And what happens next? They go, well, you know what? God is real after all. It's time for me to go back to the church. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. You have just said what we've been, you know, Red, you've been listening to us for a long time. You know we've been saying the same exact thing. This is why when I do talk to some Christians that are, you know, walking that border as to whether they want to be a believer or a non-believer, I've told some of them, stay over there. We ain't got our shit together over here yet. And I've had some atheists get angry with me, and I'm like, look, if he needs a loaf of bread, it's not like you don't give it to him. It's not like any of these mainstream organizations are going to get together and start helping some of these people. Now, I tell them, continue to utilize critical thinking skill and logic, you know, but the thing is that if they're over here and they're feeding you because your your food, your groceries won't last until the end of the month, you know, you're about a week and a half short on groceries and they're going to give you a couple of bags of food, you go get that. If they have a daycare center and your child is there and you get a discount because you're a member of the church, then so be it, because we don't have anything in place over here. As a matter of fact, you know, they make you feel bad about needing things. And, see, unfortunately, that's some of the same with religiosity mindset, especially with the people that go to these megachurches. Right. <clears throat> Anybody who is needy or or poverty-stricken, they are, they, they're told that they are not sowing good seeds. They're, t- they're told that they're not acting on faith, that it's their fault that they're poor, it's their fault that they're sick. And you're starting to see some of the same bullshit over here on this side of the equation. And when you point right. it out, they get angry with you. Because, I mean, I have a lot of people that are angry with me, black and white, because of some of the things that I say on this program. And, you know, the thing is is that I don't give no damn. And so, you know, um, 
I had someone say, well, that's why they don't ask you to speak at their programs. And I'm like, I didn't want to speak. I'm like, I've made that clear from day one. I am not over here to do atheist organizing. That's those other people over there. That's why they're jockeying to speak at every conference. I'm like, you can have them. They really don't know what they're talking about. And I'm like, and many of the, you know, white atheists are sitting back and laughing. They see them as entertainment. But unfortunately, the people of color that, you know, are being used as entertainment, they don't realize that they're being used. But that's a whole yeah, different when, topic there. Um, when I, I saw the – was my this is my first time calling, and I saw the show title and – when it comes to religion, et cetera, I have a, a somewhat odd, unique perspective, possibly, because I do see lots of intelligence in the creation of atoms and galaxies, but I also see lots of destruction when galaxies collide, when one animal will kill another animal and eat it, et cetera. So my perspective is on a timeline, atheism on the left, and most of the religious heads on the right, and I'm between the left and the middle because religion nor the belief in a God is critical enough for me in any aspect of my life. It is kind of like on the level of playing chess, and chess is slightly higher. What I mean by that is even though I do think that there's a, there does seem to be some kind of intelligent creation somewhere in my opinion, after that, to me, it don't matter because it isn't helping me. It isn't helping my family. It isn't helping my business. What helps is the hard work, the studying, dealing with racism, dealing with extremely hardcore religious heads. Um, so, in fact, I had a, re- a meeting with Charlie Rangel. Um, he's a politician, and some of these topics couldn't come up because, well, I shouldn't say couldn't come up. He wouldn't address during the meeting. Um, and so we, we, whether it's religion or science or music, most of the topics are ones that take our power away. And then what happens is the people on top of the religion or the business sector, they then extrapolate the wealth. So when you mentioned the atheist community and there being those challenges, I, didn't, I wasn't aware they existed. Right? And then I thought, wow, that's the same thing that happens with the gay folks I run into who say you have no idea. So it seems as though it's all a power trip, meaning all these types of the sexism, the racism, the religion. When you extrapolate all that, what do the people on the top want? The power. And they have little tactics to use to get the power. Yeah. And, and people yeah. buy into that's it. Why, whether it's, that's why yeah. I call them pyramid schemes. That's why I call them pyramid Ponzi schemes. And it just mm-hmm. goes from one to the other, and this is why, you know, I caution a lot of, you know, um, uh, spiritual or religious blacks before coming into this community because, unfortunately, what I'm seeing in this community is they're getting their few token blacks, if you will, and putting them out there to, you know, um, espouse the greatness of atheism, the secularism, or what have you. And basically they want those people to you know, um, gather the attention and bring other people into the community so that they can pay the membership fees and so that they can say that they have a certain number of black people or, you know, Latino people as part of their organization. It's a numbers game just like it is in church. But at the same time, they want these people to not only pay the yearly membership fees, they want them to come to these conferences, which are overpriced. You know, not I was just going to mention that. 
Yes, you know, it's overpriced, and then it's the same people. They invite the same people over and over. And the thing is, why should they come to a conference when they can see that same talk on YouTube for free from last year? And it's the same talking heads over, and then in most cases, look, this is the bottom line, especially for many people of color. They, you know, they love math and science. You know, we have to. We live it every day. But at the end of the day, if we're worried about how we're going to pay our rent, feed our family, and put some clothes on our body and have enough money to get back and forth to work, we're not really interested in your damn black holes in your Milky Way. That is not the topic of the day. Topic of the day is where can I go and get some groceries? This program over here at this church, they do rental assistance. Let me call over there because at the end of the day, you have to survive. You have to survive. Right. And telling someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, that's enough to get mm. you cussed out, seriously. And you hear quite yeah. a bit of that <laughs> in this community. <laughs> and you've heard, I've heard it from, you know, some other blacks in this community. It was on um, one podcast, and one of the people said, well, you know, blacks, he, at first he said that he went from being a doubting Thomas to an Uncle Tom, and I think he got that mixed up, you know, because, you know, he was using, you know, Uncle Tom in a pejorative sense, but this lets me know that people have not read the story, they don't understand the significance of Uncle Tom and how that character became mocked because the white people were upset that Uncle Tom would not turn on the other slaves. He would not, you know. But anyway, you know, you have to go back through the history. This is why I say it's important to know the history. But he also was talking about, you know, um, blacks having to bootstrap their way through. And, you know, when I heard that, I was like, you know, absolutely amazed. But you have those people in this community. You have a lot of blacks in this community that are buying that libertarian, you know, rhetoric, you know, by the bucketfuls. But you also have, a, you know, a group of people in this community that are black nationalists. There are black nationalists hiding behind the atheist banner. And I did a couple of shows, the first three shows of the year. As a matter of fact, it was interesting when you all were talking about the atheists who were mad at their mama for making them go to church. You know, they became atheists because they were mad at her. I did a show called Church Hurt Atheists. You know, so, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a lot that goes into this, a lot of psychology behind it. And, you know, uh, what Red was saying about people becoming atheists just to be rebellious, just to, you know, to elicit shock and all of that. You see a lot of that, and you see the ones that came to this community to get popular because they're not popular in real life. They come to this community to get some type of power because they don't have any power in their real life. So, I mean, you just have to look at the bigger picture. Um, for those of you, we may go into overtime. The guest call-in number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. That's the only way you'll be able to hear the overtime, so you have two minutes to call in. But, um, yeah, you know, um, what's interesting is, you know, going back to the Poor People's Campaign and, you know, what's happening over here in the secular community is basically, you know, a lot of them are not for social justice and they mock the feminists and especially the people that are for social justice. So they created this new group called Atheist Plus and, you know, with atheism plus social justice issues. And so you have some of the atheist celebrities, Richard Dawkins in particular, as well as some other, you know, um, people. And I've seen even some of the black atheists, you know, mocking people and calling them social justice warriors, if you will. And so it's, it's just really interesting because 
like I said, if they don't care about each other, if they don't care about helping each other, what makes you think they're going to care about you and what you're doing? And so this is why it goes back right. to what you know, Patip Kenyatta was saying. We have to have these different systems in place. We have to have these different systems in place that we can help each other because there will come a day in which we will have to rely on each other and work collectively to progress any type of change. So, um, and that's not only within the secular community, but we're trying to build that bridge and, you know, you know, basically fill in the gap between the religious community and the, commun- and the secular community. And it needs to be had, and that's the beautiful thing about the conference that we're doing. You know, we're going to have people from the believing, from the faith community there on different panels so we can have dialogue. It's going to be the same way next year when we have it in Houston. We want the dialogue. We want people to talk. We want to find ways to work with each other. When we went out for National HIV Testing Day, you know, we went out with, you know, um, groups that were believing groups. Because at that time, the only thing that mattered to us was encouraging people to know their HIV status. That was it. You know, we weren't out there proselytizing or anti-proselytizing. And people are going to have to get over all of these differences. We can work on that in the meantime, but at the end of the day, we have way too many people that are out here suffering and that are hurting and that need our assistance, that need our help. Yes. The, um, coming from what you said, um, there's also my personal approach to life and friends and business associates, and that is to, I'm pretty inclusive, right? Uh, even people that have what I would consider more extreme concepts, like I have friends that are black nationalists, separatists, some friends that are kind of white, ultra conservative, but when we come together, there could be a janitor in the middle a martial arts grandmaster, a celebrity, a brother or sister that just got out of jail. But what happens in those groups when we hang out is there isn't the judgment on, well, you don't have a black belt, so you don't have a value, or well, I got $100 million, you don't have. We just get together and have a blast, whether it's fun or whether it's a debate, impromptu. And so very often... In societies, the value that a person places as the most critical value, if it's not fun, truth, health, happiness, longevity, um, family values, not necessarily the way conservatives say it, family values. I'm just talking about, you know, protecting our children and our young people. Then we, we have this caste system, and sometimes it's in the religious community. Very often it's in the political community. It's very Um, obvious in the skin color, you know, racist community, and it exists in, of course, the socioeconomic community. Um, And I think humanity, if we can get to the point where whatever people come to the table with, as long as it's not hurting the people around them, then what we, and and leading to possibly a more negative future for humanity, because some things may not hurt us now, but it'll hurt us later, like some of the new nuclear um, uh, weapons or new, uh, water filtration systems that that it may be taking water from one area leading to more problems. Um, and black folks, especially brown people, Moorish people, we can't afford to lose people in in that way. That way meaning over um, sometimes philosophical differences, unless it's going to hurt people, because we're we're getting wiped out. 
Every land exactly. was getting wiped out. Exactly, exactly. Not just here in the United States, but this is around the world. And yeah. that's why I talk about how we have to start thinking globally. You know, and I know that's kind of difficult for some people, but we have to start thinking globally. That's why, you know, I want them to go and do some research and see about the other groups and other countries that, you know, support it, the cause, and because not everybody is against us. And we have to be careful with the media because the media will take the situation, um, let's say the Black Panthers. They basically portrayed the Black Panthers as this violent, you know, gang that's, you know, um, you know, causing havoc all over the place. But they don't talk about the good things that, you know, and they weren't doing that at all. You know, um, basically they weren't talking about how the Black Panthers had the breakfast program and how they had to triage. They were treating people for, you know, basic medical needs. And, you know, just a lot of programs that came from the Black Panthers, you know, even with some of the daycare, you know, how all of that came about. And they don't talk about that. And they also don't talk about the fact that the Black Panthers actually still exist and there are still Black Panthers within the communities that don't get talked about. And these programs are actually up and running to this day. Exactly. By exactly. the way, there are two exactly. Black Panthers now. There are two Black, sorry, Black Panther parties. One is the old Black Panther party and the other is the new. Most of the members of the old Black Panther party have um, not taken the title officially anymore. A few are professors or have... Um, cookbooks out, um, one moved to Africa. Last time I spoke to him, I, I'm sorry, I don't know if he's still living. But then there's the new Black Panther Party. And in my opinion, many great members with good intentions, but they seem to be led um, by some leadership that may be making decisions that are counterproductive to an intelligent movement that plans to be successful and not get people targeted and put on lists. So the old Black Panther Party, I'm so supportive of, but the leadership of the new Black Panther Party, not the average member, just like not the average member of the Nation of Islam, I have an issue with. I have issues with their leadership. And then that puts me at issue with the members because the members are thinking the leaders are the gods and prophets. And so, yeah, things have changed. Right. So many of our organizations have been hijacked, in my opinion, just like hip-hop. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of it has been hijacked. I mean, even when we talk about the original civil rights movement and how it was, you know, hijacked by religious believers because um, religious leaders and because there are a lot of religious people that feel that the civil rights movement would not have happened if the religious people hadn't made it so and that, you know, Martin Luther King and all of these people represented the religious community. And that is not true. They don't understand that less than 5% of the churches supported Martin Luther King, less than 5%. They thought he was a troublemaker. They didn't want to, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, change the status quo because, you know, they were still benefiting from the status quo because, like I said, it's nothing but a pyramid Ponzi scheme. You know, those at the top benefit and those at the bottom continue to be crushed. But um, what you were talking about with the new Black Panther Party, yeah, they have made some fatal mistakes, especially when they call themselves putting a bounty on George Zimmerman's head. And see, when they do things and say things like that, that is why the media blows them off and do not yeah. offer them any type of credibility. 
when they start, you know, making, you know, charges such as that. But, you know, you still have a lot of old heads around, if you will. And, you know, it's, it's just it's interesting. But what has happened is younger generations, you know, the media was used to instill fear in us. Because, again, you know, either you're going to be killed or your name is going to be dragged through the mud or you're going to be behind bars wearing orange for a long, long time. And this is what they, you know, instilled in us as far as any type of real black leadership is concerned. That's why they handpicked certain people in particular, uh, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. The media has picked those people. We didn't pick them. And in, in many cases, when they go and they protest against these companies or what have you, the people pay mm-hmm. them to go away. Because when they had that boycott here in Chicago, when um, the Rainbow Coalition, which is Jesse Jackson's organization, yes. they were walking through the neighborhoods protesting the liquor stores and the number of liquor stores in the black neighborhoods. If you all don't remember, it just kind of quietly went away. And what had happened was um, Jesse Jackson's sons now have one of the largest liquor distributorships in Illinois. And, you know, in addition to that, you know, when he was protesting against one of the major cola brands, you know, interestingly enough, Jesse Jackson Jr. ended up owning, you know, a cola distribution plant, you know, and a number Mm -hmm. of other things. So I tell people, follow the money. Follow the money. I can add some hard evidence to what you're saying. I was in a meeting with someone I know who is a friend of Jesse's and who told me, because they know where my head's at, they say, look, when you see Jesse go to these places, he then gets a deal for either one of his relatives or someone in his circle. So it's right. not just theory. It's, I mean, sometimes people call it, oh, it's just a conspiracy. No, and I'm not the only person, meaning many of our theories that we put out there that people may not believe, there are people that actually can substantiate it with actual evidence, either from a close colleague who can confirm, but who won't go public because they're still friends with the person, or from other hard evidence, maybe a printout or an email. And I met with Charlie, like I said, and he, he's not about us. So these conspiracy theories often are just thrown out there to deter people from believing um, what is being said about the actual perpetrators. Yeah. Exactly. And You're there's hard the evidence. Scent. Go ahead, Red. Go ahead, Red. Oh, no, I was going to say, um, they're throwing off the scent. That's all That's all that's happening. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And as far as what I was saying about, you know, the liquid distributorship and the cola, mm-hmm. you know, distribution plant, you know, there are articles all over the place about that, you know. And what's interesting is, you know, people laugh, you know, about Scandal, you know, that particular show. But, you know, I'm not going to talk about the show itself, but I'm going to talk about the concept of the show. So, you know, the lead character, the woman, is supposed to be a fixer. And a lot of people don't realize is that you have people like that in real life that, if you are someone of note, some type of celebrity, and you make a fatal mistake, there are some people that you can come in to try to fix the situation and get ahead of the situation so that you can still come out smelling like a rose. There are people whose job is just that. 
So um, it's just interesting when you start talking about because the, you know, it's based on a real-life character. If you go and you read and do the research on it, you'll see the woman who that character is built on, but it is a real job, and there is a lot of manipulation with the media, with, you know, mass communications. And this is why we talk about, you know, the different images that you see, the different things that are out there. You have to be careful about that. Even with the Internet, you know, you have some some sites that give you fake history and have you believing this stuff when it's all wrong, which is why we tell you to fact check what we're putting out there. But, um, yeah, you have people, you know, in, in, you know, in the United States that, you know, try to get ahead of everyone regarding, you know, these situations, in particular the situation down in Ferguson. But, again, I applaud the young people down there for booing Jesse and Al off the stage when they were asking for donations, you know, because it's just absolutely ridiculous. That town is already impoverished. They're already dealing with enough issues, and then you go down there begging, and both of them are multimillionaires, really? Mm-hmm. And this is what right. I don't so, understand. They so shouldn't be asking for donations. They shouldn't be asking for donations. Paid, they should be offering them. They basically paid marketing and publicity professionals whose message is about black empowerment and the black folks actually buy into the message. It's like me being a professional marketer of Christmas and people buy into Santa Claus as opposed to realizing, but wait a minute, these guys really ain't about us at all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, like I said, I'm proud of the young people that are, you know, coming out here and that are saying, no, no more of this, we're not going to have it anymore. You know, I have to give them credit for that, but we also still have to do our part and, you know, continue to talk about this history, continue to share this information because a lot of people don't know. There's a lot of people that buy into the pomp and circumstance, and we have to learn how to look beyond that because it's nothing but a distraction. It's nothing but a distraction, but, um, you know, you know, one of the more interesting things um, from the conversation we had today is about the conversation about religion and how, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, it keeps, you know, some people asleep, which is what they want, but on the other hand, it keeps certain people vigilant and on the lookout because, you know, what's interesting, and I'll go ahead because I've said it before, and someone wrote an article that, you know, uh, encapsulated it perfectly, and I'm going to put it out here again. What I find interesting, you know, in particular about the secular community is the way that they're trying to, quote, unquote, sell secularism or atheism to communities of color, to me is like a direct parallel as to how they try to sell Christianity to, you know, um, people of color. And this is why quite a few people are being very careful, being very vigilant, and are wary of what's happening out here. And, again, you know, the reason why you don't have as many people of color or black people in particular in, you know, the atheist community is because, you know, of the behaviors, you know, and, you know, the agenda that's being set forth. And, you know, unfortunately, we are not impressed by billboards, but we are impressed if you can hand out groceries to everybody in this particular community that's suffering. You know, you know, we're not impressed by 
you know, you're filing all of these, in, in many cases, frivolous lawsuits. Now, I do believe in a separation of church and state. I believe in that. But why are you filing a lawsuit because, you know, a young person died in this particular location where it was a drunk driving or they had a motorcycle accident or whatever, and their family puts a memorial up there which includes a cross, and then it's been up there six months to a year, and you feel that it's been too much, and now you want to sue that family in the state and demand that they take that down. Don't they deserve to have some time to grieve over the loss of a loved one? And that's what I mean when I'm talking about the frivolous lawsuits. Now, going back to what Red Ninja was talking about as far as the textbooks in Tennessee, I'm sorry, in Texas, and how um, they're trying to say that slavery, that slaves were happy to be slaves and that um you know, that the slaves were H-1B visa, you know, holders or whatever they're trying to sell out there, that's bullshit. Now, that's something we need to push back against, you know, them trying to turn this into a theocracy. Yes, we need to push back lawsuits, need to be filed over that. If they're going to be handing out religious materials in the school, yeah, why not let the Satanists and, you know, the weakens hand some stuff out as well. So, I mean, that type of stuff, you know, I definitely can agree with, but... Again, there's a reason why many people of color, you know, view atheism with suspicion. And, again, you know, they see what's happening over here. They see us talking about, you know, the racism. That's the reason why some of them are upset with certain, you know, black leaders in this community that talk about the white supremacy, that talk about racism, and, you know, the other people in the community that talk about the homophobia, that talk about sexism and the misogyny. They get upset because they want us to act like we're all on the same accord. And when we start talking about, you know, the issues in the community, they call it mission drift. So, you know, they're on a mission to get from point A to point B, and those of us that, you know, are on this mission with them, and we're complaining about these other things, they're ready to dump us overboard because they call it mission drift. We're trying to, you know, drift them away from, you know, their original intention. But yet no one can define what the mission is. No one can tell us what the mission is, but they can tell you what it's not. And it's not about anything that makes them uncomfortable. So, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. interesting when you start looking at it. And the other thing, too, um, the other thing that we have to remember about this, too, is that within a lot of the atheist community, um, you may have actually said this earlier, but I want to emphasize that just because you're an atheist does not make you intelligent or a careful researcher. Because you can be you can be superb about nailing down religious policies, but you can be absolutely dim-witted about things like politics, like financial right. stability. Being a free thinker doesn't just mean being a free thinker about religion. It means being a free thinker about all possible positions within the world today, right? And you have to be able to question every possible idea, not just the religious ideas and not even just the political ideas, the social ideas, the sexual ideas. You have to be able to question everything. And too many atheists are not willing to question everything about their lives outside of religion, as if questioning religion is the one thing that makes you intelligent. It's not. Exactly. And, I, exactly. When, and that's, that's when, why I say you have to use critical thinking in every aspect of your life. 
And it's like you have those out here that only utilize that when dealing with religion, but they don't utilize critical thinking when it's dealing with the politics, you know, even within this own community. And it's just interesting because all you did was, you know, you're turning your brain off to different issues that need to be addressed. But, see, that is what they are counting on. And this is why I talk about sometimes about that transference projection, about how you jumped out of this fire, but you just jumped into this other fire over here, not realizing it's it's the same fire. You just moved from the left side to the right side. And there are two groups of religious people, in my opinion. One group is the traditional set that believe in an Allah or Yahweh, Jehovah, God. But then there's another group who take a subject matter like black power and make that a religion. And I'll tie that to Ferguson. Um, I was speaking to one of their so-called new leaders who claims that he is the one that's going to free Ferguson. So I got a lawyer on the phone and I said, hey, why don't we do this? He wasn't on the phone right then, by the way. I said, why don't we have the community vote? Because we already have Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, self-appointed leaders. Exactly. So since he wants to be the leader, we set up a conference call for a ton of people to come and, and guess what? He boycotted. So very often that concept of religion, I'm repeating, can be applied to a system that someone takes so intensely and believes in so much, but for their own benefit. And that's what often happens with our, you know, empowerment community, whether you call it black empowerment or anti-racism or whatever. We have to be careful not to let folks represent us if they have a selfish objective. Now, if they are strictly in business, hey, my business is producing A and I'm selling it at this price, hey, cool. But if their business is talking about helping free people from oppression, then there's a tricky question to that. Should that be free? Meaning, should our activists actually be able to make a half million a year on their hard work, or should they live off food stamps and some barbecue chicken? So, that, you know, these types of questions are, are pivotal. I mean, because if we want to get out of it, how do we get the best brains if they're going to work for $1,000 a year? Right. And, I mean, that's a very great area there. And, you know, one of the issues, you know, and I've said it, you know, before, you have some people in this, you know, community, just like you have Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, their professional, whatever you want to call them. You have some people in the social... Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. You have some people in this community that want to be professional atheists. So, you know, they want to charge an arm and a leg to have, you know, to have have them there as a guest or what have you. And it's just, the whole thing is interesting. It's just being transferred from one community to the other. When we point out the religiosity or, you know, the, the particular group think, you know, the mindset, you know, they tend to get upset. And, you know, you're correct earlier. There are some people that they don't realize it, but their atheism is a new religion. And that is how they're treating it. And then when those of us charge that and start pointing things out, then now we're troublemakers, right? Because I've I've been deemed a troublemaker in a couple of circles because I just won't take it hook, line, and sinker. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. That's not how that works right there. You know, and so At home in the attack. It's typical. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so the whole thing is interesting, but, again, you know, we have to be able to, 
survey, you know, the bigger picture and see what's really happening out here and start calling things out for what they are. And unfortunately, you're going to have some people out here that are going to take it personal. When it's not personal, it's definitely professional. And because this quote-unquote atheist movement, the phase that we're in now since it's in its infancy, I feel that we can address a lot of these issues now. And we need to address it before it gets out of hand because otherwise we're, you know, perpetrating the same things that we see in a religious community. We get angry with religious people because they won't call it out. But then the people in this community are too scared to call things out as well. It's the same shit. You know, when Red Ninja was talking a minute ago, um, you know, about how somebody can be an expert, you know, in this, well, Richard Dawkins, let's use him as an example, Brilliant evolutionary biologist, right? But he should never, ever open his mouth up about social justice issues. Never. So this is why they're having a field day with him, you know, out there, because, you know, he'll talk about, um, you know, what he considers as sexual harassment or or basically he says that, you know, if a man whistles at a woman or tries to, um, you know, talk to the woman in, in some type of way, that the woman should just be, you know, uh, flattered that the man had an interest in her. And so, you know, he says things like that. He was saying that when he was younger, he was molested and he turned out okay. You know, so he was out there putting anecdotes as well. And if we hear religious people putting out those same anecdotes, you know, we attack it. But whenever you try to attack one of these so-called atheist celebrities when they say something that's ill-gotten, if you will, um, then you're deemed, you're, you're called a troublemaker and you're called unethical because they want us to be quiet and not say anything when mistakes are made on this end because it's mission drift. We should just all be focused on the same thing and not worry about the other things. But at the end of the day, when people see me, they're going to know that I'm black and they're going to know that I'm a woman. You know, they don't necessarily know that I'm an atheist. And so it's just really interesting when you start looking at the bigger picture. And, you know, this is the reason why I've gone beyond thinking that it's different ideologies and I just attribute all of these things to the human condition. You have certain people that are jockeying for power, you know, by any means necessary. They don't care who they have to step on or who they have to hurt to get what they want and what they need. And unfortunately, you know, with a lot of the political climate in this country, you know, and some of the ideology, is like that's being encouraged, especially in the atheist community. I mean, I've never seen so many narcissists in my life. And even, let's let's also, we, we also have to focus on another thing, too. Um, when we talk about politics, um, and when we talk about, you know, the politics of power and, you know, how certain things can't be questioned, um the situation with Richard Dawkins, the very the really interesting thing is when you have people that know the fallacies of what he's actually saying, that know what he's saying is wrong, but they will still defend him vigorously. And they will say right. Richard Dawkins has a right to actually say these things and here's why he's right and here's why he cannot be wrong. And the the thing about that that I find startling is that I thought we were atheists because we wanted to question authority, but apparently exactly. not. You know, I thought I was cool with questioning Sam Harris on his policy with Israel, but apparently I'm not cool, and apparently I'm not 
you know, I'm suddenly, you know, causing too much trouble or actually asking too many questions or bothering right. too much with things, with conversations that I shouldn't be having. But that's absolute bullshit because we are exactly. supposed to be questioning everything. We're supposed to be questioning stances. We're supposed to be questioning politics. We're supposed to be questioning political ideas. And if you're treating, and don't get me wrong, you know, like Sam Harris in certain areas can be absolutely brilliant. And he's a great neuroscientist. And there are certain things that he said that he, that I actually value. I still will read books like Letter to a Christian Nation, which is actually a great book. But when he goes out about when he goes off about why he doesn't criticize Israel, and you have atheists actually jumping to his defense saying, "Well, listen, this guy is too intelligent to be wrong about this." What I'm out here saying is, weren't you just saying that? about preachers, uh-huh. and aren't you criticizing Christians about saying that about their ministers when they say that yep. their preachers can't be wrong, and their preachers are too intelligent to be wrong, and their preachers are, are too gifted to actually be wrong about what it is that they're saying? Are we are these exactly. guys not being treated like preachers? I'm not going to do exactly. it. Sorry. That's exactly. the, appeal to exactly. pity, the appeal to authority, appeal to intelligence, a fallacy where if someone is supposedly intelligent in an area, what happens is then they can't be questioned in that area, but definitely, well, no, opposite. They can't be questioned in any area, but definitely not in that area, which is almost an old school way of raising children. I'm an elder, so exactly. since I'm older, children can't question. They just have to go to the church, or they just have to vote Democratic, or they just have to listen to hip-hop or reggae, when they may be into rock and roll. Um, it's a it's a mindset that has been con- beaten into us, and that critical yep. thinking is so critical, but it's not done enough. Exactly, exactly, and that's why we say question yeah. everything, yeah, question everything, utilize those skills in every area of your life. Because again, you'll hear them, you know, critiquing religion and breaking it down to the very bone marrow, if you will, but they they won't utilize those same skills <laughs> when it comes. To you know, um, you know, dealing with social justice issues, or dealing with politics, or dealing with other things, and it's just it's absolutely amazing. And when you start pointing it out, they get angry and they get upset. But you know, like I said earlier, we're on a mission. Can't nobody tell us what the mission is? I have yet to have anyone mm. define what the so-called mission is, but they can tell you what it's not. And to me, that's religiosity in and of itself, right. and that's what I call it. Right. Um, yeah, the the thing is, all of it can change as long as we're willing to actually question preconceived ideas and questioning our actual presuppositions. And I have to tell you, I have to admit, um, when I when I first dropped belief, I was kind of one of those guys that was kind of like doing it out of rebellion. And it very it it didn't take me too long to actually question why I was a non-believer. And once I kind of came down to the fact that I'm a non-believer because I am not convinced of the religion's claims, that's the only reason you need. If you're doing it for any other reason, then right. you're not you're not on the right track. And like I said, you're going to be in danger of being drawn back into the same fallacies that you were trying to pay attention to in the first place. And those fallacies exist within you know political ideas too. Um. And that's 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 all I'm saying is like question why you're skeptical and question 
why you're a believer. Question exactly. why you think the way you do, and and yeah, don't be yeah. and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid That's to right. question things and to admit when you're wrong. Exactly. Exactly, and that's the reason why, you know, when I was talking about the political aspect, when American atheists decided that they wanted to go to CPAC, right? And so, you know, they had the hashtag CPAC atheists, and, you know, we were questioning because what's interesting is the majority of the people that attend that CPAC conference or what have you, um, extremely conservative, you know, many of them are openly racist, openly sexist, openly homophobic, openly all these things that we are allegedly against. And they were saying that they know there are some closet atheists over there and that's who they're trying to appeal to, and, you know, they're trying to get some donations. But we all know that, you know, again, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And, you know, if, if they could you know, um, infiltrate, you know, the atheist community and then start slowly, you know, um, putting forth their little values. I mean, we already have issues with the, you know, homophobia, the sexism, the racism in this community. Why are you inviting people with even stronger viewpoints than the ones that we have? And what I don't understand is some of the, you know, people of color, you know, that, you know, back that up and that we're there with them and that we're telling them that it's okay to do this. I don't understand it. Me personally, now I have more respect for for an overt racist than someone that's, you know, covert. For the simple yeah. fact, you're telling me I don't like black people, period, and this one over here is saying, hey, buddy, while they're putting yeah. the back down, put the knife down my back. You know, I appreciate mm-hmm. openness. Tell me what and who you are. I can respect that. You know, but you know what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what's happening over here in this community is a lot of cloak and dagger. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors, and this is why many of us are sitting back and we're watching, and we're like, this is not adding up. This is not making sense, and this is why it doesn't make any sense. But yet, you know, we're getting pushback. You know, from from you know certain other you know black so-called leaders in this community, and see with a couple of these particular people, um, it's about what they're trying to get because you know, uh, you know, and, and I've been privy to some you know conversations and what have you. You know, there are some people in this community to see how many people will kiss their ass, so they want that popularity. They want to see how much money they can get. So, you know, they call themselves being entrepreneurial or what have you because they're trying to make money on this. Um, and then you have some other people here that are just, just in it for the sex. You know, see how many people they can sleep with. So, and this I know to be fact. And so it's just the whole thing is interesting. And when you have twisted views like that and you're looking at this and you're looking to exploit and manipulate other people, that is when I lose respect for you. That is when I lose all respect for you, and this is why I don't bite my tongue. I don't bridle my tongue when I talk about certain people. I may not call your name out, but you sure as hell know I'm talking about. So, so can I say? You know, can I just say that um, when it comes mm-hmm. to, let's say, Leader A is doing great stuff, but she tries to flirt with whoever the person is, or Leader A is in one of our industries and 
finds a way to monetize it, but gives full disclosure. For example, re- releases a book or a DVD, et cetera. Um, I think that for many um, sectors, my thinking is it's all good. And here's why. Because humans are humans. Like you'll be in a meeting talking about changing a community, and somebody in the corner may be saying, yo, man, what's your number? Can I give you a call? Blah, 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 trying to flirt, right? But I think as long as they remain, it's almost like a military operation. If you're in the military and shit is going down, other stuff happens too. Some people smoking some weed on the side. Some other people are gay. Somebody cheating on their wife. But as long as you kick ass when the commander says it's on like Donkey Kong, to me, the position that brown, black people are in, we are in such a hellhole that we got to take it all and just keep moving and then later, we can, I think, reevaluate or address issues like, well, is it right for you as the leader of A to be sleeping with so-and-so when you got your wife at home? Or, you know, because if we exclude, I'm not counting Jesse those in this because I find their work to be not sincere, disingenuous. But if they were sincere leaders and they said to us, look, you know, I kicked those people out of town and I got my son a $2 million deal and I'm cutting a check for a black college for 500000 Then it's like, whoa, we are not only got something in terms of a change politically, but we got some cash out of this. All right, Jesse. But they're not doing that. So I'm often Definitely. a bit middle of the world on those types of things. And by the way, regarding linguistics, this discussion has been very uh, linguistic linguistically advanced, even though I messed up the word linguistic. It used to be until I tried to say it. But I want to encourage people who may not speak the English language um, extremely well to still participate in these types of discussions because mastery of the English language is not necessarily an indicator of consciousness. You have some people probably listening who are like, man, I'm not going to get in on that. They're using all those big words. Screw that. Say what you got to say. I was on a radio show with a brother that was stuttering every other word. But the things he had to say were so monumental that had he not come to the table, we would have missed out on maybe 10% of his wisdom that he brought. Everyone else brought 90, right? So sometimes these discussions seem so highfalutin to people that they don't participate or they just tune out thinking that we're a bunch of, oh, these some supposedly educated fools, you know. So just something to think about. Right, because we're definitely inclusive. We include everybody, you know, in, in these conversations, and that's why, you know, when I present it, I try to present it in a way that I know that everybody will understand it. And if not, you know, I'll spell a word out or I'll post, you know, the link later on my page. They can go and look it up. But, yeah, you know, we encourage people to be autodidactic, which is self-taught. You know, we encourage them to do that because in many cases this, you know, that's really the only recourse that they may have. So that's why, you know, we post the links and that's why we tell you to yeah. do research on your own. You you can learn this on your own. You know, it's, it's not really, you know, complicated in this respect, but, you know, it's, it's something, it's a tool, it's a weapon. It's something that you need to know. This is information that you need to know and that you need to share with others. And that goes back to mm-hmm. what we were talking about earlier when I say we kind of somewhat failed some of the younger generations because we didn't talk to them, we didn't share them, share with them some information. And even some of the older generations kind of failed us because they didn't talk about certain things. And some of it I can understand because some of them dealt with very traumatic situations. You know, how are you going to sit down and talk to me 
about mm-hmm. the, the night you, your father lynched. You know what I mean? That that traumatized you. Let's say that traumatized my grandmother when she saw my. And this is not the case, so I don't want anyone in my family tripping. You know, so no, I'm just talking hypothetically. If my grandmother saw, you know, her father lynched, and she can't talk about it, you know, you, you know, we can't really blame her. That was a traumatic situation. In many cases, we just want to forget about these things. And but let me clarify that one more time. That that didn't happen to my grandmother or my yeah. great grandfather. <laughs> you know, people take it and twist it. So you you know, but um, yeah. um, yeah, you know, some of these situations have been extremely traumatic. I mean, even with the situations that you know we're seeing now, you know, the people that witnessed Mike Brown being shot in cold blood, I'm sure they are traumatized. I'm sure they're traumatized, you know, and this is happening. What they say, every 28 hours a person of color, a black person is killed in this country? You know, that's, yeah. you know that those numbers, you know, is, is unreal. And then what I find interesting is there are people out there, black and white, mostly white, but you got some blacks out here that will try to deflect the conversation and say, well, what about black-on-black crime? And so I did a show last year on white-on-white crime, and, you know, basically I say there is no such thing as white-on-white crime, just like there is no such thing as black-on-black crime. You know, it's called proximity hypothesis. So you're going to commit crime against the people that are closest to you, against the people you can get to. And so, you know, the whole thing is interesting, but they keep trying to bring this black-on-black crime thing up without talking about, I mean, if you're going to talk about black-on-black crime, then you have to address white-on-white crime. And so, you know, it's it's a a distraction, it's a deflection to get you off the topic because I saw, you know, a lot of people doing that, especially in the Ferguson case. You know, they were saying that they hoped that the cops killed the protesters and how embarrassing it was and, you know, just all kinds of ignorant stuff. And this is from black people. And, you know, I sat there and I had to, you know, tell one of my cousins a thing or two. And I'm like, after all of that that you stated, you still have not said anything about this young man that was killed. And he still never said anything about it. And, you know, but he was, you know, and I told him, I said, you're not special. I'm like, you know, Miss Ann and Mr. Charlie will sell you off as quickly as the rest of us, <laughs> even though you're out there spouting that white supremacy and black face. You are not special. They don't care about you. You are a product. You are a commodity. And it goes back to the conversation earlier when um, we were talking about how blacks have been made to feel so bad, and we've been told that we're worthless and all these things, when that's the exact opposite. We are a yeah. commodity if you will. We created this economy, we built it, and we still build it to this day. You know, again, you have to go back and you have to learn about economics. It is, you know, it is by design that the unemployment rate can't go below a certain percentage. You have to have a certain percentage of people unemployed and underemployed in order for our government not to collapse. And so, I mean, it's just just interesting when you start talking about these things and showing people this, but going back to the New Deal, from the New Deal onwards, the black unemployment rate has always been double that of whites. But before the New Deal, it was one-on-one. So for every one white person unemployed, there was one unemployed black person. But when the New Deal came around and when, you know, they were implementing affirmative action, which was for white people, then that's when it doubled up, and it's been that way ever since. 
because a lot of people don't realize that, you know, um, the GI Bill and, you know, the HUD loans and a number of, you know, um, welfare and all of that, that was designed primarily for white women and white men. And it was put in place to, you know, help them get a leg up, if you will, help them to prosper. And very few blacks were able to get into these programs which is why you hear some of these people talking about states' rights and what happened with the New Deal in order to get, you know, the, you know, the, um, the Dixiecrats, you know, to help pass that, you know, they had to basically push these programs down to the state level. It was federal money pushed down to the state. The states were able to administer the programs in which they were able to systemically exclude blacks. So when you hear them talking about these things, there's a reason for it. They're trying to find more and more ways to push us out of the system, more and more ways to oppress us. And, you know, I just, it's it's interesting, but whenever I see a black tea partier, you know, I have to rub my eyes because I think I'm dreaming. Yeah, they have a a different um, mindset because I think that what happens is when people get stuck in any way of thinking, any way, what happens is they're not willing to reevaluate their position. And even as a me, Pan-African focused person, if new evidence were to come out from, you know, reliable sources that Africa were not the center of humanity, somehow genetics was found, you know, in the middle of China that is, you know, 100 million years old, blah, 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 then I'm going to reflect. Right and say, oh, that's interesting. That's something maybe to look at. Not that I'm going to buy it hook, line, and sinker. Well, same thing with people that may be black Tea Party heads. I think they may be stuck in a conservative, ultra-old-school way of thinking from back in the day and maybe not willing to reassess some new evidence that shows that the Tea Party is not really for black people. We get stuck in sand and we're not willing to you know, escape. That's true. That's true. Well, guys, we're going to wrap it up, and we will be doing part three next week, in which we will be discussing picking it back up from the Poor People's Campaign and talking about today and the future, so just an extension of this conversation we had today. But um, I'll post some links later on tonight about the Polynesian Panthers, the Gray Panthers, and a number of other groups out there. I'll even post um, the book that I'm going to purchase, I haven't purchased this yet, but the name of the book is Black Power Beyond Borders, The Global Dimensions of the Black Power Movement in Its Contemporary Black History, and it was written by Nico Slate, N-I-C-O Slate, S-L-A-T-E, and the name of the book, again, is Black Power Beyond Borders, The Global Dimensions of the Black Power Movement. So I need to pick up a copy of that myself, but... Um, I was able to kind of get some sneak peeks into some things, and it looks like it's a pretty good book there. But um, I'll be posting some links, some information that I think that many of you all will have an interest in. And, again, we just want you to open your mind and, you know, understand that, you know, the whole world doesn't revolve around us and our issues and that, you know, we do have some allies around us. But then also we do have some allies that they claim to be allies, but they're not really for us either. So, you know, that's something for you to think about. Um, Mm -hmm. It's something to think about. So 
I will see you all next week, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. And this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers, where we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I thank Deborah, Hotel Kenyatta, and Red Ninja for joining us today. We thank everybody who listened in live, as well as those that are going to check out the archives. We appreciate you. And so next week will be the third part of the series. The next Sunday after that will be no show because that is the weekend of the conference. You all got two weeks. I'm going to promote it a lot this week and just give you a heads up. So we look forward to seeing you all in Los Angeles in a couple of weeks, and then next year we'll be in Houston, Texas. So until then, you all you all have a lovely rest of the weekend, okay? All, all right, you too. Bye. Thank all you. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.